the T-Hub Bobcast. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Moby. Leland, for someone who supposedly hasn't slept in like 406 hours, you sound pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> I'm uh, I'm feeling surprisingly good. I have uh, I, I as of recording, I flew home from the Netherlands two days ago. So I flew home on the Saturday, landed at about 2 p.m., went to bed at 8 p.m., slept until midnight, and I have not gone back to bed. And it is now Monday. <laughs> I had wow. a, about an hour nap today, right before recording. Uh, so I feel pretty good. I just am not tired. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. But I'm, 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 I don't know what I'm fueled by right now. <laughs> Monster energy drink. And with, you, with your busy work schedule, I don't know how you're surviving. You know, it is a struggle. It's a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, it's light out. I'll go back to bed for this week. <laughs> get up later. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it felt pretty good landing. I mean, f- coming home. Uh, I mean, it sucked, obviously, to leave Emma and come home. It was a great trip coming home is always tough but it really was softened knowing i didn't have to go to work to monday the following <laughs> monday <laughs> that would have been horrible and you totally would have planned the trip that way in the past yes absolutely <laughs> and that's uh yeah i'm i'm glad you've taken uh taken this route um yeah i'm excited about hearing about that trip a little bit i i was going to do my second or will do my second banter question uh, about your trip i have another much larger banter to bring up but Mm. shortly before listener we go into the banter segment uh, i did want to bring up something because it affects this particular podcast episode and potentially the next couple which is um, unfortunately i have a hardware issue a power supply issue with my gaming laptop, which also has the power to do the always consistently mediocre art for the thumbnail. <laughs> and <laughs> unfortunately, I'm recording this on my work laptop, uh, which has all sorts of company restrictions and nanny software. So I basically can't put on any programs. Uh, we're recording uh, through Zencaster, so browser based, which is fine, but that means just. The art is probably okay. I'm shooting for boring. Like that's the goal is like boring, inoffensive art. But if it's sucky, then you will know why. Okay. I'll do my best, but I basically have to use some sort of stock photo and then some text. And like, that's going to be about the best I can do. So uh, maybe a couple months here, listener, honestly, I hope it gets tied up beforehand. I either get a new computer or fix or whatever, but like, I'm not even going to know for another four or so days after recording at this time, what they're even going to do about it. So it'll be a while. Hmm. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. And you know, usual, usual disclaimer for me. Uh, I mean, as we said, I, I am running on zero sleep, so I'm sure I'll sound just as nonsensical as usual. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, listener, if this episode's a write-off, it's just another month till we get to April, and then it'll be <laughs> better or mm. something. But let's go into banter, and I'm trying to think, how do you want to do this? Do you want to get our small banter out of the way so like, I can end with my big banter? Uh, Sure, okay. Yeah, let's start with you. Okay, let me go first. I do have two. I'll make one mine small, so... 
on on my trip, uh, uh, Emma and I watched Kaleidoscope on Netflix. Oh, do you know what this is? I I don't, to be quite honest. So it's interesting. It's like in the vein of some of the like choose your own adventure things that Netflix has tried. You know how they had with um, the Black Mirror. I think it was ba- Black Mirror Bandersnatch. I think it was called in like 2018 or yep. whatever. So it's in the vein of that in kind of the wheelhouse of that. But it's basically it's like a heist. It's a television series, uh, like a mini series. I think there's eight episodes, all of which are named by a color. They're given a, a color. Is, that's it. That's the t- like you got blue, orange, violet, white, blue, or red, whatever, whatever the, all the colors are. And essentially every episode is like a, a standal. It's a standalone episode. So you the thought is that you can watch these colors in any order that you want and still and, and experience the story of this like the planning of this heist that's over the takes place over like 25 years of history with these characters throughout the eight episodes, whatever it is that we're seeing. So like one, you know, one episode would be like three weeks before the heist. Another one would be 25 years before the heist kind of thing. Right. So that's the, wow. Like the heist is obviously this fixated point in time that the rest of the episodes are in relation to. Right. So you can just, you know, if you want to go yellow, violet, red, blue, green, White, you could do so. You could watch White first because White is actually the heist itself, uh, which is meant to be like more of a like a, a, a final finale of the show. Um, I don't know how much it would hurt things if you actually were to like just be like, you know what? I want to watch the finale first. I want to watch White, the White episode first and then see how or pick up on details that you're seeing that obviously a lot of it's going to be out of context for you having not seen any of the other episodes, but then as you're watching those episodes, you kind of get light bulb moments, I would assume, right? Come, Oh, that is why this character is in this, in this, right? Kind of thing. So it seems very interesting. Now, obviously it's one of those things where you want to like, obviously you could rewatch it, right? Uh, I don't think I, I don't think I would, but the first viewing experience of it, you like your order is going to be very unique to you, right? You're going to experience it very uniquely. And I just want, I wonder how, I wonder if that, depending on your order, would like mean that you are, you take more of an interest in some of the, in, in one particular character over another. Cause like obviously it's an ensemble cast because it's a heist film, right? Like there's, you know, half a dozen of the characters involved in this heist thing, right? That we're seeing the relationships that they have with each other and relationships that they have outside of the group and how they're kind of, you see piecemeal, how they're all drawn together and yada, yada, right. The whole thing, or like, again, it takes over 25 years of the backstory of the, why this heist is even existing. Um, I think the story was interesting. I would definitely recommend giving it a watch. Certainly couldn't really tell you how, tell you the best watch order there. When it first, I think it came, it dropped in January of 2023. And like, there was tons of people like, what's the best, what's the best color order? And you were like seeing lists of colors order, right? Uh, maybe you want to watch it just chronologically. I think you could probably still get a lot out of it just doing that. If you want uh, more of a, a simple take, you just watch it, you know, uh, based on time and which would mean the heist, I believe would be the penultimate episode because there is a, there is an episode 
Uh, actually, I think there's two episodes that actually technically take place after the heist, which is interesting. Yeah. Don't tell me your order if you did it, because what I, I'm interested, what I'd like to do is um watch it, pick my own color order, which I will record my segment. And it would be interesting if I talk about it with you, whether it's on the podcast, hopefully, or else just even outside of it and just see what my experience was. Yeah, because I think that would be really cool. There is a video game I have, which it's the game I've brought up a few times and nobody on planet Earth who will ever listen to this podcast cares, but Trauma Team. And in that game, you similarly can jump all around the various doctors. Like there's a story, but you can jump way ahead with one doctor or do them all evenly or whatever you want to do to see different parts of the story unfold. So I'm very intrigued by that. And yeah, I'd like to give it a shot. Uh, yeah, I, I recommend it. I mean, uh, uh, the cast is cast is really great in it. And like I said, the story was engaging enough where even so we were now I, I thought I had seen, but I didn't, I tried to confirm it before we started recording that, the order that Netflix, like Netflix gives it to the users in random orders. I don't know if that's actually true. I I looked at like how my Netflix subscription had it here. Cause we watch it obviously on Emma's you know, when I was in the Netherlands, I, I, I'm gonna, I have to ask her what to look up her order and see if it's different than what my subscription gives me. I couldn't, conf- I couldn't see anywhere that like hard confirmed that. So I don't know if your order that if you went on your Netflix and saw the like if your order would be the same as what we had because we just watched it just whatever it gave it to us we didn't we just we didn't know any better we're like okay let's just watch how it how it's displayed so it would be actually interesting if it's just like mixed up randomly for subscriptions would be which could be really cool because I don't think they've said I don't I don't know that they've like Netflix has been like this is how you should watch it the whole point of it is you can watch it however the hell you want. With the caveat of, well, maybe you want to save the white episode, the actual heist, to the end. Because, again, it's like, I mean, it's the climax of the story, even though we have like a couple, in quotes, epilogue episodes that take place after. I think there's one that's like six weeks or something after the heist, and there's one that's like three hours after the heist, right? There's one like right after shit's gone down, and you're like what has happened in this heist? Like what went wrong? What these characters are no, are missing now. Like what happened to them? Like, it's cool. There's, and it doesn't overstay it's welcome to like the, the, the intrigue that this kind of out of sequence watching experience gives you is just long lasting enough. And you get the payoff quickly enough, uh, at least again, in the order that we watched it, that it's, it, it didn't overstay it's welcome. Interesting. Like legitimately interesting. Uh, thanks for the tip. That sounds super intriguing. Just if I may ask kind of to tie this one up, uh, how many episodes is it and how long are they approximately? Oh, I think, I think it was eight, seven or eight and they're like an hour long. So kind of like a standard season of TV nowadays. Yes. I think they're in, you know, in the 40 to 50 minute, if I recall correctly. Well, I mean, semi on that vein of, uh, you know, watching something with Emma on your trip. Uh, 
my small banter was to ask if you played any new board games with Emma while you're out there that you're excited to either share with us, your friends out here. Or... Uh, nothing, nothing new to me. And we certainly played, uh, we played a, a bunch of Calico, a few games of that, um, which is really, I mean, it's like a tiling kind of pattern building, right? You have this quilt and specific uh, formations of, of colors and or, patterns on the tiles they're just hexagonal tiles right you're putting on your board uh can attract cats to your quilt which are give you more <laughs> points um you you randomly set up the the like three cats that are worth x amount of points and they want a certain arrangement of tiles right and then whoever has the most points wins once your once your quilt is, is filled in uh and inside the quilt you have three gold tiles that have certain uh, conditions of patterns around them that like are adjacent to them that you can meet and score points on. So it's really cool, like little puzzly tiling. Uh, I really like that one. We also played some uh, Miyabi, it's called. I think that's what it was. And it's another kind of a tile layer, but you have like this gridded garden. On the left side of the the, the grid is different terrain pieces, like rocks, uh, like a koi pond, bush uh, bu uh, yeah bushes uh, pagoda like i think there's like six of them right and a random assortment of tiles come out with varying shapes like poly different polyominoes and you're putting them in your in, onto your grid and say if you had a, a, a an elbow shape right that's like three squares in in a little l shape the symbol may be on any one of those three squares so depending on how you orient it on your board wherever whatever column the symbol falls into you mark that column off and now you can't put another symbol in that same column. So you, uh, you try to put a symbol on of matching um, terrain types, right? On the left side of your, on your, what would be your uh, Y axis, right? <laughs> of, your, of your little grid here. Uh, you obviously you want them, you want to fill the board. Uh, but then in addition to that, you're laying these pieces, you can lay pieces as long as they um, no overhang and they, they sit flat on them, you can build the train up. So if you put on, say you have a, a pagoda that has th that's worth three on the second level, that's six points. Uh, so you want to build up. It's also a bit of a race too, because the max you go is five high. If you get, if you're the first to get up to five levels of, a, of whatever the train feature is, you get an extra bonus points. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really quick. Um, really cool. Again, I've played it. We only played it like head to head. So th those types of games, uh, Emma's a bit of a shark. So she really likes to uh, fuck me over and take the exact thing that I need. She's very good. At that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny because uh, she can dish it, but sometimes she can't take it. She was complaining to me on Steam a couple weeks ago about some dude on Ticket to Ride foreshadowing their listener. Um, who was fucking her over on an online game of Ticket to Ride. She's like, he, uh, he kept blocking me. He kept blocking me. I'm like, Emma, you would do the same thing in a heartbeat. <laughs> and she has. She definitely has. Right? It's like, <laughs> why are you complaining for your own strategy? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And I'm I'm definitely excited to play Calico myself. Um, you know, it's by, I believe it's by the same developers as Wingspan, which I really like. So Certainly, it gets advertised in Wingspan on Steam. Oh, does it? Yeah, it does. So I'm 
I've kind of had that on my list for whenever I get a computer back. But uh, do you have a, a second banter there? I do. So in my uh, 40-hour bout of insomnia due to jet lag, or reverse jet lag, maybe you'd call it. I don't know. So before I went away, I the the remake for Dead Space uh, release, which I picked up but didn't have a chance to play because I was trying to finish God of War Ragnarok before I left. I sat down again yesterday or Sunday at midnight, couldn't sleep after my four hours sleep, started pl- playing this and finished it finished it in like in a 24 hour period it took me 12 hours to play it so it's half of a 24 hour period i spent playing this in a couple different sittings but i beat it and it was great it was like it was all so they they honestly the original dead space is like one of my all-time favorite games it's always been a high up there it's a horror survival uh set in space you're like a you're a, 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 a engineer and you're not fighting your enemies with conventional weapons. It's like mining equipment and like laser cutters. And the main enemies are called necromorphs where they're kind of, they're like zombie ish, but rather than aiming for their head, you do the most damage to them if by cutting off their appendages. Hmm. So the game, the, the, revamps and, and additions to the game and, and minor changes were all great from the original nothing too significant enough significant where i was like i don't remember this section at all and despite because i played dead space a lot and despite knowing like every jump scare and and them still being in the remake still this game is freaky as hell it is it lives up it's very scary very atmospheric every like nostalgic like memory i've had of enjoying this game like i just got to relive with this remake they like this is what remakes are supposed to like this is on the level of like the resident evil remakes right like this is a remake that i have no problem paying full msrp price for and again a game that i have already paid full msrp price for years and years ago got well more than my money's worth out of it and i have no problem paying again and getting the same experience like it was it was great it was the same but different and i don't know if i would say better but like on par i I don't know what more i could ask for like it was so well executed yeah it's uh it's always interesting because it doesn't happen much more than every couple months but on our little t-hud group chat uh you and marty kind of had a quick back and forth about it and it's always cool to see you and ghost marty share a passion in video games because you guys are good at bringing stuff up but also not spoilery like you got me excited over it and certain people have been saying oh moby you love survival horror you got to give dead space a try never played it any of them and so hearing you excites me because i think it may be like one of the last great white buffalo for me to hunt in the world of (laughs) survival horror i don't know what's your thought do you think do you think someone like me would enjoy it? If you don't or you're unsure, then tell listener what type of gamer would enjoy that game. Oh, I think you would. I think you would definitely like it. Um, it's I mean, the, as a whole, the Dead Space franchise is really cool. I mean, sci- sci- sci-fi horror. Those are like I love Alien and stuff like that. Exact Right. Exactly. You are literally on a derelict and broken down 
like terraforming ship, this huge ship. And you have to go around and fixing the systems to try to get the hell out of there and figure out what's happening. Like it is very alien vibey and it is quite action oriented, but again, it's just so atmospheric and very claustrophobic in many of the areas. I think you would absolutely uh, enjoy it on, on, you know, whatever difficulty you play. (laughs) (laughs) We'll let listener guess. (laughs) Obviously I, obviously I played on hard and felt that it was the survival elements of it were really well balanced on hard. I was always on the edge of running out of ammo uh, for all of my weapons. And I felt like I never had heal heals. I think uh, from the vendor system in the game, you can obviously buy ammo and, and heals. I always had more than enough money to do so, but I think I bought heals twice through the whole whole through the whole game um, because I was able to find them. And I know I think I, you know, as you're killing enemies and you're looting from them, I think it's like randomly generated on the loot. And I believe at least it felt like anecdotally as you're playing, like the randomness is, is shifted to give you what you need more in the time. Like when I'm like my light bar is like in the red and I'm killing enemies and drop and they're dropping me heals even though I have none in my inventory. So that is cool. It's all part of the way I think that it, it balanced itself in it. And it felt rewarding because I survived that conflict barely. And I was able to continue and progress without getting stalled down or having to reload and try to be a little better. Um, so it's a little, little forgiving even on the harder difficulty. But yeah, I think, I think you would great. I think you would love it. I think the, that's a whole, the dead space franchise is really interesting and like stereotypical much like the resident evil in the later entries four, five from four into five and six, they went too heavy on the action. So dead space two is a good game in its own right as well. But uh, again, starts to shift away, shifts more away from the kind of horror aspects of it. And then by the time you get to dead space three, it's full on like RE six problems, right? Like there's, they, they try to do something different and, and introduce this like, campaign co-op play kind of similar to re5 actually more so than six but by then it's like all action all the time and like where the hell is the horror and it killed the franchise yeah so it's an interesting story and it's just nice to see the original which is just such a good blend of action and horror that you're you're always it always feels tense and the ship itself makes so many annoying random noises that make you jump just cause like <laughs> you're in a, you're in a giant engine essentially, right? Like it's the sound of machinery and like, it feels like that's what it would sound like if you were in a spaceship that's broken down and, and like barely orbiting this planet that it's cracked. Like it's so cool. Yeah. That that's, that does sound really cool. I actually really like ambient noises. I find um, for someone that's played a lot of survival horror, like myself, Ambient noises are something that can still always get you. Like if it's like a random clash or clang or buzz, it's such a simple way to get you. You know, it is interesting how you brought up how it kind of the franchise evolved into action. It made me think like, I don't have a point here, but why does that happen in video games? Because it, it's like how biologists think that everything evolves into crabs, no matter what. It's like, why do video games evolve into action? It's like, it doesn't matter. We'll have wingspan (laughs) battle royale in five years where like we have like a swift, you know, a swift with an AK-47 taking on an Imperial Eagle. Like, (laughs) it's going to happen. (laughs) It's going to evolve. Everything becomes action. Honestly, I think it's like 
they're trying to reinvent the wheel and it just never happens. Like they, yeah. they don't, it just feels like they're always, they're too scared to too scared of repeating themselves. Right. And right. I guess the, the pressures, I mean, this is from an era of where like triple a games were still triple a titles. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Uh, which I really feel like just like trip the, the, the term triple a is near meaningless to me these days. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just feel like you're so hard pressed to, to find a game that 100% fits into that category. Um, because there are plenty of amazing looking games and, uh, and amazing games in general uh, through gameplay and story and voice acting that feel top tier, but aren't technically AAA titles. Like we can get, so much more for so much less it feels like these days yeah actually that's that's an interesting way of putting it you know we can get so much more for so much less it's true and it's like what does defines a triple a game like you myself and ghost marty are going to get the resident evil 4 remake and like by some definitions it absolutely would appear to be triple a but i've always struggled with a remake being triple a I, it probably is, and I'm just being weird about it, but I don't know. There's just so many remakes out there. I just think part of me just naturally respects them a little bit less, even if they're awesome, like Resident Evil 2, because they take so much from the original source material. Probably is AAA, but I don't know. We'll see. But I mean, like, okay, to like argue against myself, I don't think I would call Resident Evil 3 make AAA. I mean, it had good graphics, but it was so rushed. It, it it was so inferior, in my opinion, to the original Resident Evil 3, which I own. And I don't know, because it just felt like it was slightly half-assed. I would see it as like double A. Oh, maybe I'm not making much sense there. Uh, no, I get where you're going, because it's like now and now does the definition for any given consumer also come with like merit of the game you know if you were to review the game like if it's a if a, a higher higher scoring review of a game factor into it being a triple a successful triple a title yeah even even maybe with the prefix of successful is not even correct there i i uh, to be honest like the yeah the basis is of of uh, it's a shifting goalpost right because i mean obviously the when re4 came out on the gamecube like that was a triple a title for gamecube yes right? yes and it was so much easier back in the day before digital distribution somehow like the idea of a game you knew it was going to be super popular so you pretty much had to pre-order it you stood in line with like a bunch of other people like it felt like an event and yeah. in the current days of dis you know digital distribution now like Capcom doesn't, I mean, they care, but like, they don't care if they have like 100 million people download it day one or 10 million, like functionally to the client servers, we're going to be downloading it off of, you know, nobody cares. There's no line. You don't need to pre-order it unless mm -hmm. you want that. They give you like just the tiniest amount of extra shit to pre-order these days. But yeah, I feel like the event of a AAA release is is gone because i have so many memories of like i said lining up and pre-ordering just to make sure i got it quickly those days just kind of feel behind us i th i think that's the case for 
a lot, like every industry, like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, uh, even when was the last time we went to a midnight screening of something for, for movies? Like we used to do that all the time. I know we, we brought that up a number of times on the show, but I, I agree with you. I mean, it's like at this point, I don't even know what release dates are for games. It's just like, Oh, this game, this game that I'm clearly would like is out now. Great. I'll just download it right now. I don't have to set aside time to make, Oh, I have to go to the store and, and, you know, sit in the line or whatever. Or even if it's like a day later to make a trip out there, I don't have to do that anymore. Now, are you nostalgic like myself, or do you actually prefer the ease of digital downloads? Um, I, I'm regrettably declining into, yes, enjoying and preferring the digital download. I, too, do like, have to, like you have the physical uh, media. I, I do enjoy that, but it is getting to the point where it's just, it's just a convenience factor. It's like, okay, whatever. And now, honestly... With with Emma, the digital download, we can actually share the games as if we're in a household because you can I think you can you can like with Sony, you can sign in. I don't know how exactly it works, but like we can we can sign into each other's PSN account on our PlayStations and have access to each other's digital downloads as if you were sharing a single copy within a household. I don't know. There's there's a limit to the number of consoles you can link to, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't get egregious. Um, but like, so she signed into my account. We were testing it before I came over there. She signed into mine. She downloaded God of War Ragnarok. So it's literally, I didn't like, I didn't have to bring a physical copy to give to her once I was finished with it. So she could then play it. Right. As we're, as we're sharing. That's a, that's a pretty huge bonus of ease, uh, totally. for my specific situation. It just happens to be so, so beneficial, <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah. it's, I don't know. So uh, like I'm coming, I'm coming around on the digital stuff and like the convenience is just, it's just there. It's just, too, you can't deny it at this point. Mm, it's fair enough. You make a good case for it. All right. Well, on that vein, I will head into our last bit of banter, 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 Bruce Banner, Bruce Banner. <laughs> Listener, I am raging. I am raging and I am raging so much that I have prepared a pre-scripted monologue for the first time ever on this show, like six, six years in, because I saw Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania yesterday. Very hilarious situation. I had bought tickets for myself in Dragon, former guest of the show. Dragon was moving and he fell asleep on his couch and he still drove like half an hour to catch the last five minutes of the movie. Like he walks in, there's probably like 15 people in the theater total. We're like dead center. Dragon sits down and he's like, Hey Moby, what's going on? Explain it to me really loud. So unfortunately this movie can be explained in about two sentences, (laughs) which is mind blowing to be able to fill him in this quickly. And Ironically, he probably got enough enjoyment out of those five minutes that I got out out of the entire film. So I wanted to monologue about this because that helps me keep my complex, well, listener probably thinks very simple, thoughts in order. So here it goes. Yesterday on March 12th, 2023, I was treated to a viewing of the film Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I had to look up the real name of this movie because honestly, I could not have cared less. 
What I saw at the theater was so mind-numbingly, offensively inoffensive that I had to monologue. This film should not exist, yet it exists. It has competent acting, competent directing, and seems like it, you know, has been made by generally competent people. Yet there's nothing there. Like cotton candy spun at a fair, it looks huge and epic on the stick. But when you try to consume it, you are left fundamentally unfilled and feeling just as empty as before. In this film, characters just happen to be warped to a place with low stakes. In fact, the only reason there's a conflict at all is because of the character's presence in that world. The action is that typical Marvel quick cut and very sanitized. Never let them see you bleed, would say Marvel. Sanitized, flavorless, PG-rated goop. You could have packaged this film as Soylent Ant and sold it to provide two hours of passable yet forgettable and empty entertainment. Though I would say it was barely entertaining. I have never seen Marvel try to force humor that landed so flat on the entire audience. You knew what they were attempting was humor, yet nobody laughed. You could have actually heard a pin drop in about 90% of the humor that the movie tried. Nothing is resolved at the end of the movie, and the characters barely grow, if at all. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, in my opinion, should have stopped after Avengers Endgame. This film proves to me that the MCU has no identity now, yet it seems to want to keep employed the crew and the individuals that help build the MCU, if for nothing else than to simply tread water until they figure out what they actually want to do with their franchises. This movie stands out to me because it cannot be spoiled. There is nothing to spoil. There is nothing in the beginning, middle, or end of this film that could spoil anything for anyone. It was once said of the TV show Seinfeld that it was a show about nothing. However, that's only partially true. In the nothingness of Seinfeld was relatability and heart, and we saw that in their stories. The nothing situations were often experienced by us in a certain relatable way in our lives. And with that connection, the humor of Seinfeld hit. However, with Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, there is neither relatability nor heart. There is simply nothingness. Two hours of dead time sucked into that lifeless void. It was as Leland will one day cry with his last dying breath. Unnecessary. <laughs> Monologue over. Uh, brava! Brava! <laughs> That's wow. how I feel. Okay. Okay. That was great. I have a few things. Go ahead. So Emma and I, Emma and I were going to see this one weekend. Uh, we were like ready to go out the door. And at the last minute, we're like, you know what? We don't need to go see this movie. So I have not seen this movie. A lot of what you, I think a lot of your, what you said, which I agree with uh, wholeheartedly, honestly, the problem currently with the MCU is they 
for a decade built to end game. Yes. They now, because of the finality of end game in, in, in most general aspects, it was a finale. They have to rebuild. Now they essentially have to rebuild the MCU. We lost, yeah. we lost all of, all of the characters that we, we liked and wanted, right? All the mainstays anyways. So they're trying to give us new ones. They're like, honestly, the weakest franchise outside of like probably the first two Thors, like the weakest franchise is Ant-Man. Absolutely. Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp are just generally fine movies. Uh, So the problem is now we are getting one of our first iterations of Kang, the Conqueror at least the the evil Kang, as we saw a version of Kang in the Loki series, which was like one of the few, I don't want to say pacifist, but like good, for for lack of a better term, like good guy Kang, versions of Kang in the multiverse. Uh, the, the looming threat is that like he's so unique in the different versions of him that every other Kang literally is a conqueror. So we're seeing like Kang the Conqueror for like the first time, the main villain for the next, the next two phases. Uh, as we build into the next Avenger movies, we're seeing it in in the weakest franchise, yes. the weakest superhero franchise. Like that's a problem right away. That right yes. off the bat, that's a problem. And because everything takes place in, the, I assume because like you mentioned the setting, because it takes place in the quantum realm, which it makes sense that there's no real stakes because of that. Uh, going right into it, based on the film, the title of the movie, you understand that without even seeing it. Like, that's my expectation, right? As yes. I go into this. So that's yes. a built expectation already. And I don't know anything about the particulars of the plot of the film, right? That's the problem. We're, we're now in the rebuilding after we've already been through it. And that's where the fatigue is coming through. Um, I also watched on my trip uh, Wakanda Forever, the, the newest Black Panther film. And it, too, was uh, forgettable. There's now... Honestly, like I feel almost I like almost feel bad judging this movie because there were obviously with the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman, they're just in the worst possible possible position for this film. Right. They did every like they did everything they could to to make it half of a like a tribute to Chadwick and a continuation for the character and and Wakanda itself and the characters uh, around Black Panther. Right. Right. They did their best with it, but like, it was just ultimately you can't like you, we watched Emma and I watched it and we're like, what actually just happened in that two hours and 45 minute long film? Because it's two, it's two films. It's, it's a tribute to the passing and it's a passing of the torch. Like it's two different films put together so maybe that is a little anomalous just again because of the position that particular superhero line of films is in. So that's why it, it's tough to judge it because of that, but it's in the vein of other kind of mediocre films. Honestly, like it just feels like we're getting beat over the head with the multiverse and the multiverse is what's happening for the next three phases right four five yeah. six yeah it's about the multiverse and like i'm already tapped out on the multiverse yeah doctor strange 2 what well, had some really good moments but was also ultimately uh mediocre 
obviously um spider-man no way no way home was great like a great tasting of the multiverse so cool to have all the you know toby and andrew garfield come toby mcguire and andrew garfield coming back uh so maybe i'm definitely biased towards that film in particular just because uh of my connection to the spider-man character in general in those previous movies especially the sam raimi uh spider-man movies but I just like, yeah, it's, I'm just like tapped out on it now. And there's there's no reason uh, for me right now to to like seek out one of these MC, uh, these Marvel movies to see it in the theaters. Like I just there's no draw to see it on the big screen for me. And that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, A couple comments there. I think that because Wakanda Forever came out first, I think it could have been a canary in the coal mine. I mean, even with the tragic passing, as you mentioned, of, of Chadwick Bosman, you could have just pressed pause and just been like, OK, let's figure out where we're actually going to go with these characters. It feels like Marvel has become such an assembly line for films that they can't really do a pause. I don't know if they feel like they're going to lose talent. And I'm talking about like behind the screen talent, whether it's writers or, you know, everyone from like gaffers or best boy lighting crew i don't know it seems like they feel pressure to keep this constant baseline level of work even if they're putting out cotton candy empty calories just something forgettable now i haven't seen wakanda forever but i quite liked black panther and for me to hear you say this is very congruent of what i'm seeing from the mcu as a whole and like at some point you have to assume it's going to break for them. Like Ant-Man is a modest financial success so far, but sooner or later it's going to be like when Disney was hammered over solo, they're going to get a massive film. They put a lot of money into and doesn't make any money at all. And uh, I wish it wouldn't take a moment of reckoning like that for the MCU, but maybe it might. Yeah, I I, th- I agree with you. I just think like the the wheels are in motion and have been for a while. And yeah, they they can't course correct. Um, they have to kind of charge ahead and hopefully get and and hope I guess that when the the wane in popularity is still still means that their their movies are profitable. Yeah just not as profitable so i don't know whether or not they have you know a certain percentage in mind and maybe they dip below a certain percentage and that's starting alarm bells to go off or whatever happens over there um but there's that and then also banking on that the ultimately the payoff you know the avengers uh is going to be worth it so (laughs) i don't know and i think we've discussed before too i think the last time we had ghost marty on or for the year end wrap up with ghost marty like the forecast for phase four, five, and six is just happening over uh, just such a, a, a much shorter amount of time compared to phase one through three. So yeah, maybe that's part of their understanding of this superhero fatigue in general. I mean, just look at all the shakeups we're seeing over at Warner Brothers. Like the, DC doesn't, they don't know what the fuck they're doing either. Uh, like, they don't. you know what I mean? So to, 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 to like, to call like Marvel Studios directionless almost seems hyperbolic, you know, right? Compared to Warner Brothers, right? And all the DC stuff. Well, I, I can't tell if it, if the MCU is just behind the DCU and falling apart, or that 
Warner Brothers just couldn't hide it successfully, whereas Marvel could hide it. Because it's definitely like out there that the you know DC universe has severe issues. It's just, I mean, they just push the cinematic universes too too far. Like you can't keep building to a climax and then a climax and then like a super climax and just keep going. Like eventually you need to reset or focus on small character pieces. I know you're not the biggest fan of Arthur Flex you know, Joker, but, you know, with Joaquin Phoenix, but, like, it's different, and it's on its own, but it's still a DC superhero slash supervillain property that a lot of people liked. I would have liked to see things move in that direction. The problem with Ant-Man specifically is he's such a forgettable character. He's such a minor character. Yeah. And the word that sticks out to me is he was a novelty. To have Paul Rudd cracking jokes in that suit was a novelty. Like, his appearance in um, Civil War was great. Like, where they kind of kidnap him in the minivan. Yeah. And he uses the yeah. pin particle to get huge. Like, okay, yeah. that's cool. But that's like a novelty scene. To build a trilogy out of him, I mean, I would say you can't, but they just did. <laughs> well, the, the kicker on that is like, it's not like Paul Rudd isn't a leading man. Like, it's yeah. not like he can't support a film. He clearly can. So, like, what is it? Like, what? Like, is it just boiled down to the character of Scott Lang and how he's portrayed? I, I think so. I don't, would it be different if if this was actually, like, a Hank Pym character who was a little more serious? And obviously, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, um, Baggage. domestic <laughs> abuse that happens between Hank Pym and, uh, uh, um, and the Wasp uh, in the comics. Obviously, shit just to stay away from Hank Pym is like a much more serious character. Paul Rudd cannot have been cast as Hank Pym. Pym, I don't think that would have worked. Michael Douglas is great as him, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so the casting of Hank Pym in this uh, context uh, of Scott Lang being his protege, and we actually don't see really a Hank Pym as Ant-Man kind of thing. Like it works on paper, but for longevity wise, does it go the distance? And I don't know if we're seeing that it does. Yeah, it's one of the few jokes that actually hit in uh, Quantumania was uh, Bill Murray. I guess it's slightly larger than a cameo. This shouldn't be spoilers. I mean, he's like on the cast list. But Bill Murray plays a character in one scene. And um, he used to be allied with original Wasp. And so it's funny because there's this awkward scene. They're having dinner and... um, you know, obviously, original Wasp has been played by Michelle Pfeiffer. She's been out of the quantum mania for a while. And so I think his name is Kryler. Bill Murray's character goes to Evangeline Lily and, you know, new Wasp. And is like, me and your mom had some wild times, wild times together. And she looked and Hank's like, Hank Pym's like slamming on the table. He's like, how wild? Tell me how wild. And of course, Bill Murray's just like playing it up. And then Michelle Pfeiffer, she's like, I was in here for 30 years. I had needs. And then Hank Pym, of course, because he's such a slime ball. He's like, well, yeah, I had needs too a bunch of times while you were gone. It's like <laughs> they both cheated on each other. Yeah, that's like that's like so Michael Douglas, though. Right? He's like- so... Michael Douglas, this is the way, this is actually a thought I had during that movie. Michael Douglas had to know this movie is forgettable or stupid and unnecessary. And the same Michael Douglas who years ago said, 
I hate super mo- hero movies. That's all there is out there has now done a trilogy of them yeah, as Hank Pym. Yeah. And yeah. he, you can tell he is trying to save the movie. Michael Douglas. He's trying to put in all his Michael Douglas energy. He's a main character in this one. He's front in from beginning to end as, as is the whole kind of wasp and Ant-Man family. And he's trying, and I, I give him props for doing that. I think all the actors tried, but I think uh, Douglas Douglas really tried in this one. I mean, so did Paul Rudd, but th- the writing is bad. Like, Paul Rudd can elevate a lot of writing. If it's noticeably bad, then it's just a bad movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to say, but it's just, it it is. Yeah, it just, it was it was very disappointing. I plan to see Creed three Creed three in theaters over the next week, week and a half. I just hope that's a much better movie when I see it. But um, that's all I have to say about Quantumania. I've said more than it deserves. <laughs> all right, well, let's move on. Then. Let's get out of this banter. <laughs> let's move on. OK, listener, we've got a brand new mini segment for this time. Yes, kind of experimental. And. Where this came from is when we used to do condescending controversy, which was an attempt to make Leland and I like artificially mad at each other. We just ended up agreeing with each other and then often having a draw because that was the best Leland would agree to. And that's (laughs) best that Leland wanted to agree to. So we would have draws. And so I thought, okay, let's have a new segment. What it is, it's a mini segment, so it's not going to take us that long. But it's called Love It, Leave It, or Pass. And I have five topics I'm going to bring up to Leland and basically throw it at him. And he's going to say, yeah, I love it. I want to see it or want to play it or I'm excited about it or leave it, which means he definitely is like, no, I don't give a shit. I don't want this. I'm not going to touch it or pass, which is more like what Leland can say either if he needs to suspend judgment until later or he just utterly doesn't care like there's really not that much to talk about it it's just like no pass it let's go to the next question that doesn't mean like if Leland wants to give an anecdote and say why he wants to pass I mean that's fine certainly if Leland gives a love it to any of these topics I want to hear why if he says leave it to any of these topics I want to hear why and obviously the word love it or the terms love it leave it pass don't necessarily fit perfectly into everything I'm going to ask, but it's part of the fun. It's basically thumbs up, thumbs down, don't care. So the first thing I wanted to ask Leland, uh, fresh off the press, everything, everywhere, all at once, that film, the Oscars were yesterday, just at the time of this recording. Lots of people from it won the Oscars, it won tons of Oscars. A movie like that, where I think it's fair to say you probably wouldn't, see ever at all unless you know what well you wouldn't see it at all unless there was a reason to and so I guess my question for you is will you see everything everywhere all at once do you plan to see it even on like streaming when it's free love it leave it or pass love it I have seen it it's it's great and it's worth every award that it won oh wow okay I I did not know that listener so that's that's sweet This one has obviously been on my list to see since it came out. Really wanted to watch it with Emma. She and I, of course, have like a watch list 
um, that, you know, when we finally are able to be in the same spot, we, we can, we have a list to consult if we want to watch something that was on our list. Did not get to watch it with her, uh, unfortunately, because in the Netherlands, for some reason, the only option for subtitles was for French. So I couldn't put on <laughs> English, sub- well, or sorry, there's French and Dutch. So I am not fluent in Dutch, uh, can barely pass my way out of ordering something from a restaurant. So like, I couldn't understand because a bunch of the uh, movies uh, spoken in Mandarin. Um, I believe it's Mandarin anyways. So so you miss a lot of context without fully getting the subtitles, right? Uh, so I, I did watch it on, on the plane run home, actually. And even on the plane, like it was it was great. I was like suppressing laughing out loud uh, <laughs> at a lot, like a lot of the parts. Like it's got a great. It's like the writers, the writer had a fever dream. He woke up covered in sweat one night and consulted his notepad that he meticulously keeps ready at his bedside table and scribbled down nonsense woke up the next morning after going back to bed and had to make it cohesive and somehow did it it's amazing it's great it's the weirdest fucking thing in the world it was completely right up my alley loved it loved every minute of it well that's that's great because apparently if you include all the award shows it's the most awarded movie ever in history. Wow. So wow. I'm excited. To, I, I am excited to see it. I was expecting you to give a leave it or a pass. So this is great. This is what I want is to to have my expectations subverted, as Ryan Johnson would say. <laughs> I, so my, I don't want to spoil anything, but okay, there is there is a wonderful butt plug setup and amazing payoff. <laughs> <laughs> if if that alone if that alone doesn't want you to make you want to watch this movie like it's worth it just for that <laughs> okay wow completely out of context not knowing what you're talking about that sounds amazing <laughs> let's move on to number two which is is the only one on this list here that we've semi touched upon just about my mcu banter marvel phase five so given what we're, we're we've discussed um that wakanda Forever it was like filler. They didn't know what to do. Ant-Man, Quantumania, you know, you just listener, take it from me. It's worthless. Would you, Leland, want Marvel to put a pause on the MCU and figure shit out? Even if that were to have consequences like losing some of their better director crew, maybe limit the actors they can get back. A pause for the MCU to figure shit out. Love it, leave it, or pass. I think it's going to be a leave it for a pause because maybe it's more of a pass being in the line of neutral. But I I think at this point, if, if, if the studios themselves think that these projects are still financially viable to continue to attract um, the talent, like the talented actors, writers, directors, all of the behind the scenes people and have faith in those crews that they undoubtedly bring in for multiple projects, right? Then have at it, have at it. Cause as a consumer, we have to be able to pick and choose for ourselves. We, we, right. you know, we, we bounce back and forth uh, on the top of MCU with criticisms of it feeling very necessary to consume all of it. 
Uh-huh. I don't know if that is 100% true. And I, I can't speak to it because I do consume all of it. Uh, whether not right away, obviously, right now, basically, once it hits Disney Plus, like I have no, I'll watch it, you know, I'll watch it once it hits Disney Plus. That's essentially what I've been doing. So, right. Yeah. I think it's going to be a leave it for the pause because I just think there's nothing wrong with the options. Again, as long as that's still financially viable, there's still passion from the people actually doing the projects. I think you're going to still like somebody's going to find merit because somebody's going to be so uh, attached, whether it is uh, adults like us or children that love the movies, regardless that they can find something and they can see some, see themselves in some of these characters, especially when we have like uh, a series like Miss Marvel with a, with an Indian lead. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. If you don't want to consume it, just don't consume it. That's I think the bottom line for me. Yeah, no, I actually, I think that's a great point. I think I think you're correct in that sometimes I know myself and probably listener too feels pressure that to quote unquote get Marvel you need to watch absolutely everything. You certainly do not anymore. Certainly since phase 4 in my opinion you do not. I mean wherever they're building to whatever Mazeltov but like <laughs> I don't think you need to watch Ant-Man 3. So, okay. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, you may have semi-answered this before, but I mentioned, uh, I'm, uh, very interested in Creed 3. Seems to be great movie, but, uh, for you, cause I know it's limited for you going to theaters. Would you go to theaters to see Creed 3? Love it. Leave it. Pass. Uh, that's, th- this is the pass. I haven't seen any of the Creed films actually. Oh, I know. Okay. Yeah. So I know you and Ghost Marty really like them. Um, I, I need to, I just need to watch them. But yes. I'm just, it's just like, I'm, I'm sure once I watch, once I like watch Creed, I'm like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta, wa- now I gotta watch two and three. I'm, I know that I'll enjoy them just based on overlapping interests that you, myself and Ghost Marty have, like, I'm going to enjoy these films. It's just a matter of me seeking them out. And for, for, for that, it's a pass. No, that is, that is a very fair answer. Number four. Now I should preface this because the question might be a pass. Do you currently have Crave, the streaming service, or are you planning to get it in the near future? Uh, I, I, a few months ago, got rid of it. I was going to ask because off off of the podcast, listener, I've been absolutely fanboying about Picard Season 3. I think it's fantastic. Some of the best Star Trek I've ever seen. You do not need to see Season 1 or 2 of Picard to get whatever you want out of it. Like, it's just completely separate. So my love it, leave it, or pass was, would you watch that on Crave? Oh, yeah, love it. Like, I want to watch. It's another one of those things, like, I am I know I'll like, because uh, how can you not enjoy every minute of Patrick Stewart as Captain Jean-Luc Picard? You're, you're dead inside if you don't. <laughs> as as <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> so, yes, I want to watch Picard. And now, like, with three seasons of it, that is worth getting crave for a couple months, two, three months to, to oh, get through. Yeah. Shit, man, you plow through that in 24 hours. Easy. I know. Like <laughs> I don't sleep anymore. So yes, episodes. I would. You don't. <laughs> I just imagine you getting out of a coffin, like springing out, staring right at your TV. You've got like a PC on the edge of your coffin, <laughs> gaming controller, PS5 controller. So, okay, great. Uh, now this question, I mean, so... I'm trying to think of an analogy for you, and I guess I'll have to go the easy route, which is God of War. So it came out in the last couple of days. 
that Zelda Breath of the Wild 2 is going to be sold by Nintendo for $70, which is $10 more than video games typically retail. And when Nintendo was asked why, they didn't give the excuse of like, oh, we're putting in 16 times the detail. Thanks, Todd Howard. Thanks to you for that joke earlier today. But instead, they're just basically saying, oh, when fans see what a great, deep, immersive experience it is, it'll be worth the extra $10. I was like, (laughs) if someone said that to you, right? Like if someone said that to you outside of one of your most core franchises, like God of War, would you love that answer enough to be intrigued and be like, maybe this is the best thing since sliced bread. Would that be like a leave it? Fuck you. Or would that be just a pass? You don't give a shit. Um, box. (laughs) Uh, I think that it's going to be, oh man, I don't even know because in the context of the phrases to answer, it's, I don't even, I'm like confused on what my answer would be now, but I have to say, I have to say, and I don't want to launch into another Nintendo tirade because we had enough of that in February's episode with Shannon. (laughs) We had more than enough of that for a very long time. I don't need to do that, but I'm just saying, so the, the retail price is now going to be $69.99. Yes. Up from like 59. Simply because it should be overwhelmingly such a good game. <laughs> that is just hilarious <laughs> to me. And hilarious that it's Nintendo. Because first of all, I mean, I'm paying $89.99 for God of War Ragnarok and Dead Space Remake. Like, get off your fu- Okay, Nintendo, like, you should be... <laughs> I can't even articulate this. This is just... I'm like... <laughs> I can't even, I cannot articulate the absurdity of this because like one, just jump your price. Just make all your, all your well, we've already established that Nintendo is needs to f- generate more income for, for right? Because based on the rate of the releases of their flagship uh, franchises of these video games, just up all your, just up your price. Everyone's, char- you get, everyone's getting charged out your the ass. It's still, you're still going to sell your games. The, t- the $10 is not going to make a difference. Just tell us that. You need to increase your price. You know, like, I don't even know what to say. Like, that just seems like somebody was like, how can we spin this in the laziest way possible? Yeah, I I would say it's lazy because there's no real thought behind that answer. Right? Like, there, there's a dozen and one reasons they could have given why it should be $10 more. And I think Ghost Marty was alluding to that earlier, you know, in our group chat. But for me to hear Nintendo, it was just surreal for them to come out and basically say the game is going to blow your mind. So it's an extra $10. I'm like, what? So like I have a better bottle of Pepsi than my last bottle. So it should be like $5 more. Like exactly. Just, exactly. It, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense because you can't quantify it. You can't just say like something is goes from great to super great. So spend, 10 more dollars of real quantifiable money to get here. <laughs> Look like it's precedent that they're setting now. It is. Now they're going to be able to get away with it. And every one of their, like this is going to happen with every one of their mains, their, their flag pole franchises. They're going right? to do it with every single one of them. Could, could you go back? Could you do the next Zelda at 59? You can't. Exactly. All that says to the consumer is that they put in less effort. Now, exactly. based on their own fucking words. It is the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's ridiculous. And look, this is my problem 
with Nintendo in <laughs> Okay. Uh, you got it. You got it. Take, okay, take a couple minutes. Wild. Here. Take a couple okay. minutes. Here. I know for a lot of like soul Nintendo and like fanboys and fan people of the Zelda franchise in general, that Breath of the Wild was in that context a revolution for that franchise. The open this finally this open world for Link to explore and and get into all his linky shit or whatever Link does. Yeah. But that's not revolutionary in the overall video game industry. What they could expound upon for Breath of the Wild 2 cannot, it's not going to be revolutionary in the terms of open world sandbox games. Like all of this Absolutely. stuff, other companies have been doing this for like a decade, two decades in their open world sandbox games. Like they're not reinventing the wheel. That is where the absurdity of this just hits me right in the funny bone. And I just can't stop but laugh. <laughs> I just cannot stop and help but laugh. Well, it, you, you hit you hit the nail on the head more ways than one. Because, I, I mean, I doubt you've seen the trailers. Because why would you? But they clearly show that it just reuses the entire map from uh, the original Breath of the Wild. Changing very little. There's a few mountains here and there that like have a little hole you can now like cave you can explore whatever but it's not much and then there's a few floaty islands in the air and that's it so like if you're setting people up like you said for a revolutionary game that cannot be revolutionary you're mm -hmm. going to shoot yourself in the foot even if it's a great game because like someone like myself that comment has now needlessly unnecessarily raised my expectations because uh. I've been told that's why I'm spending an extra $10. Right. Right. Which I mean, when you think about it, I guess it's just like a percentage. Like, of course I can afford it, but it's like an 18% increase to the price. And just on the basis of like a ratio, like it better be damn good. Yeah. You didn't know how to answer this, so maybe I'll answer for both of us, because if I try to get you to answer, you'll just laugh again. It's it's a leave it. It's a leave it. Of course it's a leave it. <laughs> yeah, how the yeah. fuck could it be anything but a leave it? That whole statement is a leave it. Yes, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's I, I would be interested to see how much outrage there is to it, uh, like like vitriol. Um, yeah, I don't know if the fan base, uh, the Zelda fan base in particular, has more or less of that than any normal, you know, fan base has, because there's always going to be toxicity in a, in, a, in a given fan base. It just is inevitable when you get a, a large number of people who enjoy and want to share this one thing. There's always going to be people that make the space negative. That is unavoidable. I can't speak to the, again, the state of that particular uh, fan base, whether or not it's more or less prevalent compared to others. But I just want to see some of the backlash because, again, like after taxes, Canadian, I'm paying just over $100 Canadian for a brand yeah. new quote unquote AAA title. Like it's, it's fucking ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And the, the, it, what you said exactly is what it comes down to is it's not quantifiable because that $10 is going to mean more or less to any given individual. And it's going to be on the individual to determine whether or not that extra $10 was worth it compared to breath of the wild to breath of the wild Two. Like it's just asinine. It is absolutely yeah. asinine. 
You know who Nintendo is? Nintendo is Alan from the original Jumanji, played by Robin Williams. It comes <laughs> okay. from a he comes from a family that's rich. So Nintendo had this huge backing before they figured out video games. And so it's like in Jumanji, the parents have a shoe factory that Alan works at. And there's like an invention there of like a sports shoe. And it's like, yay, I found something cool that we can make lots of money off of. But then instead of socializing, Nintendo goes into the jungle for 30 years and comes out wearing leaves with a long beard and a knife. And it's like, ooh, ooh. and so it's like everybody's <laughs> looking at Nintendo like, what are you doing, Nintendo? Where have like, you what been? Are you, yeah. What are you talking about in marketing and life and anything? You're just like this crazy bearded man wearing leaves, just like, ooh, ooh, $70. It's like, no, even like what you're saying, how other companies are charging a hundred. It's like, where did Nintendo get so full of themselves to think that like $70 was even worthy of a statement? Like now I'm starting to go insane. Just even thinking about it. This is like a mind <laughs> fucking topic. Well, let's okay. Let's move. On. I don't know if that was your last one. I assume it was. All right, let's get, let's move on. You, did you enjoy that legitimately? I liked it. I liked it. All yeah, right, we'll great. we'll do it again. And I think five questions is pretty good. So we'll keep it at five next time. Uh, but we will move on, listener, to video game variety show. It's called Games in the Year Two Thousand, just like Conan in the Year Two Thousand. <laughs> this is really this is going to be our shorter of our two main segments. Uh, but it's basically about hardware and how video games will evolve over the next uh, 10, 20 years. We're just trying to put our fortune teller hats on. I was really inspired for this uh, segment by using chat GPT a lot in the last month and a bit. And it's it's a cool program. It It's pretty relatable. And it made me think that, you know, technology like chat G GPT uh, could easily revolutionize NPCs in video games like that sort of technology, especially if there's good voice recognition software, maybe you're wearing a headset or something. Again, this is foreseen 10, 20 years in the future, probably closer to 10 in this case, but you could actually have a conversation with an NPC. And I thought that was actually plausible. And so when I thought of that, I was thinking, Hmm, what other technology hardware changes could I see happening with video games in the next 20 year, 10, 20 years? What, what trends can we say now so that when we listen to the podcast back episode in 15, 20 years, we see if we were right about any of these. So that, that, that was my first one was AI use in NPCs. Do you think that's plausible? That kind of technology would get to be used. I think that's a really interesting uh, use of it honestly i'm not sure in the context of a scripted environment how a very random and more unpredictable element like an an ai that will would generate responses or could generate responses breaking like fourth wall breaking responses and like Obviously, there you know there would be limitations on it, and it, it, like the it just needs to be applied properly. But I really think that's really interesting when you're thinking of like uh, like an RPG and you're getting you know speech um, branch branching speech options that 
are, are, are pretty much standard now if you want uh, if you want a, a game that you can uh, add an extra ten dollars onto because of how in-depth it is <laughs> like that's that's what you get that's part of it right you you need that and you need the the branching past and I think I think an AI could be really fun like it could make for like a really bonkers interaction and can could and like immersive interaction if, if pulled off really well yeah you know i'd given that particular scenario some thought and what i think you would do is you know take a i i'm just making this up but like a flower girl like Aerith from final fantasy 7 and you have her as an npc and you you utilize the ai technology so you could ask her questions like you know, hey, where's the closest potion shop? And she'd say, oh, that's Carl. Uh, down the street, take the second right. But if you were to say, you know, hey, can you tell me about the dragon on top of that volcano? She could say something like, oh, sorry, I've never been outside of this town. Like you can give it parameters to limit limit it. And that's that's what I thought was plausible as kind of a first step. So I was thinking of that as one. I also, I also, my second theory that I came up with is I think VR technology as it's currently utilized is actually going to take a step back. So what I mean by that, and I've used VR a couple times, notably at Ghost Marty's with Half-Life Alex, which was great. VR just, it doesn't make a lot of sense walking around with it, like, like walking for movement in the game. Because by the very necessity you have this VR headset on, you can't see the ground. So you either you're walking into walls or you have to have someone else look out for you, like, or I guess lift up your helmet and then it's breaking the immersion. So what I thought is going to happen in the next 20 years is that it will be common to like sit and play games with a VR headset, but whether it's movement just based on your arms, pumping like legs or something like that, you could have trigger handles which already exist that you would hold but i think vr is going to be more common but as a seated experience and that the vr is mostly just going to be used for like kick-ass visuals and sound hmm. so i guess my question for you is do you see vr taking a step back where it's no longer a physical standing up activity with video games or do you think that just in the natural evolution of immersion with vr that will still need to stand and move around? Or do you think the VR is just a novelty like 3D movies and it's just out the door? I think that, you know, some people watch movies with their VR headsets, that they're already immobilizing themselves and, and using these headsets. So I don't think like it's a, it's a far cry from that. Obviously, that's not, I don't know if viewing a movie with the VR headset makes it more immersive uh, as just a viewing experience. I, I don't know. Um, rather than like an experience where you are interacting with a physical 3d space that seems like you're in, which is a point of VR, right? Yeah. So I, I, I wonder if like gearing it towards something that is one, I mean, that just makes it more accessible to a wider uh, amount of people and is part of the way to make it more like feasible to be more widespread as far as like sales go 
And, and again, and down to the accessibility, because like you don't, it's not like a console and obviously consoles themselves are very cost prohibitive, but you don't need a VR headset to go with your console, but you need the console. You know what I mean? Like, right. The, right. Like, I'm thinking like the PlayStation VR, which apparently the, uh, the, the latest iteration of it is supposed to be phenomenal. Uh, even put up against something like the quest Two, like Facebook's quest Two and stuff like that at a reduced price point to boot. So I think like it's getting to where it's economically feasible now to have them widespread in households to pair or, or possibly substitute if you have like a wireless one and a self-contained one, a console and there, there could turn into a console or home entertainment unit in its own right which is honestly what consoles are built for now, right? I mean, you get all your streaming apps through your console, if you, uh, or you can anyways, if you don't have a smart TV, yada, yada, yada. But like they have that capability. So I just think it's, uh, it seems like it's a natural progression of it. I mean, it just makes it, makes everything just easier for the consumer. Well, and that's for this segment, that's what I was trying to think up is, I mean, you are very welcome to disagree with me, but I was trying to come up with plausible things that we would see in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. I do have a really interesting one. It was inspired by EA, just how we're constantly bashing on EA and microtransactions. And what I thought is what's also plausible in the next 10 or 20 years, probably 10, is that a company, a company like EA could use AI learning, machine learning to scan and learn the behaviors of some of the best uh, esports athletes playing their games and then sell that AI back. I can't even believe I'm saying this, but sell that AI back to the consumer, whether it's in a loot crate or just like a DLC to practice against. So say you've got an amazing guy called like C-Spike in some Battle Royale and uh, he sells his rights to EA EA uses machine learning. It sees how he plays the game. Then you can buy that AI as a bot to practice against and hone your skills. I think you will see that attempted. Hmm. I know it's out in left field, but just, I know it's a creative thing, but think about it for a moment. I think there's a measure that makes sense because I, I often think of you and my brother love to play battle Royales, especially um, hunt, hunt. And imagine if you two, could offline play AIs of some of the better players in that game whenever you wanted. And so instead, instead of rolling the dice, like, are you going to play like shitty people or really good people? You actually know you're going to play some of the best. And then you can re-enter the actual server with your skills honed. I just see use for that. Well, I, I think uh, I agree with you, honestly, with the, especially with the prevalency of esports uh, as well on the rise and or continue to rise honestly like they're not something that is you know done in a in, in a, in a backdoor space uh one weekend anymore right there like they bring in millions of dollars in earnings of advertisements and and prize payouts right depending on the game obviously uh, i think that in, that honestly makes a lot of sense for a fledgling esports gamer right like a, a a teenager that 
gets a hold of the mommy's credit card and <laughs> buys a five buck little program that they put into yeah their offline version of a game and can practice against. Yeah, I you know what I mean. I'll, I'll take wingspan. I played Emma a few times. She she's whooped my ass a few times. I've been semi close. I would love an MI AI that I could just boot up at like one <laughs> thirty a.m. and play five games of wingspan without any shame of losing until I get better. <laughs> you know that that's just a thought of mine. It, it'll just be really interesting. I think that I mean video games naturally have needed AI on some level for a long time. But now as AI grows more and more powerful, what they can do with it will will be crazy. What about a dynamic battle royale that doesn't close the circle, the circle based on like an arbitrary time, but it's actually got algorithms to see like, okay, people are all in this kind of map. Let's compress them in over here. Something like that would be pretty simple and increase enjoyment of the game. Um, well, I mean, in a way you were kind of explaining that about dead space, like how, when you were low on healing items, the game would realize that and start to drop you just enough to sustain you. Yet it helps you in the immersive experience. In fact, that's very much along those lines. Yeah. 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 Now that I think about it, do you think some of these applications are they, is there more of a risk of crossing a line when you start to apply like chat GPT type AI, even with many parameters put around them uh, for a specific context, depending on the game, obviously is there, does that just open you up to a more exposure? You know, like, is there just more risks with it? You know, I guess it would depend on the kind of risks i think where it may turn into a problem first of all you would need heavy heavy anti-cheats because the last thing you want to do is take like one of the best esports players and you know you're doing a five on five human teams and somehow have wired in this ai who's like better than your worst person right yeah so you don't want that beyond that I think we're entering an unknown realm. I would honestly probably take a pass on your question of love mm, it, leave it, or pass. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is, I'm I I'm assuming you're familiar with the Turing test. Yep. Now this isn't exactly a Turing test, but I think we could easily in the next decade, not two decades, next decade, get to a point where in a traditional player versus player, P versus P game that AI will become mostly indistinguishable from a human player. It'll have that level of unpredictability and creativity. And what does that mean for gaming? Right? I, I don't know. I mean, I look at someone like my brother. My brother is a huge gamer, spends lots of money on his gaming rig, spends a lot of time with his friends gaming, has my sister-in-law complaining all the time. But my brother Chris would not be gaming if he could not play against humans. He has no interest in playing against predictable traditional AI. But what if you had AI that was almost or just as good as a human, indistinguishable? What would that mean for gaming? I don't have an answer. I'm just throwing that out there. Hmm. You know, it's funny because like, I think immediately about Escape from Tarkov. And so, okay, so it's a bit of... 
I mean, there's always controversy with Escape from Tarkov in general, but very recently there's been a lot of cheater controversy and a content creator by the name of Goat basically cheated to expose cheaters and he made a YouTube video about it. And I mean, it's all like he... I don't know. It was a good video and it was just funny because like he employed like an ESP, which is essentially wall hacks. You could see f- people through walls, right? What he would do to try to go in and uh, expose other cheaters was looking, you know, if you can see looking at a guy through a number of walls, you know, a hundred meters away or whatever on the game, he would just wiggle back and forth. And if the other person through the walls wiggled back that's an indication that that person also has this ESP and they can see each other. Right. 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 Huge blow up of that. And it kind of also filters over to, uh, there's a, there's a version of escape from Tarkov called SPT. I think it stands for uh, solo player or single, single player Tarkov. It's not made by battle state games. The, uh, creator of Tarkov, uh, his name is Nikita has gone on record of not liking SPT and threatening legal action against it because essentially it is a modded version of Escape from Tarkov that allows you to play single player, go into the maps, progress in a single player manner as Escape from Tarkov is an online co-op extract shooter. So it's essentially just gives you a single player version of this game that can be can have great really great highs and really low lows right that's that's the type of this what this genre of game offers yeah in single player you get to experience probably a more of a bell curved you know uh you're you're, you're getting a, a escape from tarkov on the bell curve right you, you kind of have a mid-range of some of these lows and highs i would imagine right and i'm just thinking like a mode like this with some of the ai of these uh, very popular streamers put into them like that is money absolutely 100 yeah, like that would make money totally. right that would definitely make especially when like the edge of darkness version of escape from tarkov is like upwards of 200 dollars to play this game what yeah and and it is Holy it shit. is it and it offers uh it's pay to win is, is a lot of it what it, some of the benefits you get from it. you get bigger stash you get more starting gear uh, on a wipe you have a bigger secure you so you have a little container it's it's like a butt pocket you put shit up your butt and even if you die in raid you get that stuff out if it's in your container you get a larger container of that i mean i i do have an edge of darkness account uh, i've <laughs> so i've spent the money you, on it and you've stuffed a lot of stuff <laughs> up your ass <laughs> yes i have put, i'm sorry i, I didn't know that so much shit. that's all oh, it's it's great i put so much stuff up there it's great <laughs> So, so like they're making money, and I don't know if if uh, Battlestate Games BSG plans to implement a single player version of Tarkov. Which, if they do in the future, then this SPT certainly infringes on that. Um, but currently, I don't know. Uh, obviously, people that are a fan of it make the argument that it makes Escape from Tarkov accessible to another audience because one thing of the creators of SPT actually did implement two drive sales for BSG is that you cannot play SPT unless you have a purchased copy of escape from Tarkov. So their, their intent is not to pull away income generation from Battlestate games. It's just clearly passionate, many passionate players in this fan base in the community of escape from Tarkov 
they just want a single player version of it because they want more of the game in uh, more of a bit of a controlled environment, I guess. So it's just like, I don't know. It's just all this AI stuff immediately makes me think of something like that. And when you talk about like single player experiences or versions, obviously that needs to be built into these online games, which more often than not, they do not have. I mean, Hunt Showdown doesn't have an offline version that you can go in to a map with AI, with other AI hunters in it and fight the bosses and shit. Like, because that's not, that's not what the game is supposed to be. Like, that's not the experience that like Crytek wants to offer and not the experience that BSG or the vision that Nikita at Battlestar Games has for Escape from Tarkov, I guess. And that's fine, obviously, especially when you're, if you're struggling to get your game to full release to like 1.0 release, like Escape from Tar- Escape from Tarkov is still like beta. Uh, it's very much like Star Citizen. It's been in development for like over a decade. It's brought in like hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. And even with new patches, like Star Citizen just had a, a latest patch 3.18. And just like every other first patch with a bunch of new additional features, it's it breaks the game. It's broken. They need to work on it. They they can I mean they can spend as much time in these test servers that they want. Uh, which they routinely do, obviously, before it goes live to everybody. But th- that only gets you so far. So you're always going to get jank with a new update on these beta games because that is, uh, people forget that that's what a beta is for. A beta is to implement new features and work out the bugs. And you are paying to work out the bugs, essentially, is what you're doing when you by uh, an early access like that's what it is and a lot of people forget that and a lot of people get entitled about it i've certainly fallen into that myself i think there's a lot of problems that some of these games like escape from tarkov and star citizen it feels like they should have been fixed years ago yes uh and it feels like we keep getting offered things to keep us enticed but we're not getting things gameplay wise to keep it to keep our interest. Um, that's just a, I think a problem in general with early access stuff. I'm just getting really tired of it. <laughs> I mean, just look at uh, sons of the forest that came on the sequel to the forest a few weeks ago. They recently had an update. It added a bunch of uh, like some new weapons and some new building features fixed uh, the Kelvin AI, which Kelvin is like your, your helper, your AI helper to help you gather resources like logs and sticks for building structures and stuff in the survival horror game. But there's no content there. They they put it out into early access, or they didn't put, or they wouldn't have put anything out at all. They were unfortunately forced to do so by production times. I don't believe it was ever in their plan. I don't know. A lot of people. It's funny seeing some of the criticisms of that game too, because I've definitely seen. I've only seen both sides of the coin. Like I've never seen like a a, a pass opinion. It's only love or leave, really. Like other people are really enjoying having. A multiplayer experience with this game or ultimately it's it's falling flat for them because it has no content it is devoid of content story-wise uh just the way the 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 world itself is populated how empty it feels and again i haven't played it myself uh, i really enjoyed the forest i will be getting sons of the forest eventually i don't know if i'm gonna get it right away it is it's not like full msrp like 89.99 at least but i don't know i'm tangenting again but i just like I think these applications for games like this, which are not 
trip like they're not triple a they're not quote unquote triple a titles right uh they're not made by huge studios that have millions of dollars in backing to to pour into the resources of these games to one just have to be able to avoid early access altogether and even even these studios that are able to do so <coughs> bethesda they're releasing games that are supposed to be finished that are clearly not. Uh, so everybody struggles with it. Like how the fuck do you get around it? Everybody is early accessing now, even when they don't want to or plan to they're early accessing. It's like, what's, I don't, what's going on in the industry. I, what is happening? Is there just like, what is it? What, why? It's not a good trend. I, I am probably more outwardly, against it than you are like i'll just say i really don't like early access across the board categorically because i have yet to find a single early access game that gets well funded and the devs are like yeah now we have the motivation to like do this better quicker stronger i've never seen that in any of the games what i've seen is the moment the devs have their pockets full of coin they become slower. And unfortunately, not in all cases, I tend to see a downward graph, like a downward chart going like updates, then less frequently, then less frequently, then less frequently. And I mean, I could give examples. I've got examples off the top of my head, but I mean, I don't don't see how that would be necessarily relevant. I mean, listener, hit us up on social media if you want to know some examples, but I've just got a ton, you know, Star Citizen's included in that too. Star Citizen has done some amazing stuff, but it's also been 11 years and they're still in alpha, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, I mean, Star <laughs> Citizen is, is one of the most fascinating things because I don't think we'll ever see Star Citizen finished. It's like this giant tower of Babel reaching up to the sky that we're just going to see how many blocks and floors they can add to it over the coming years. Before it ultimately collapses. And and how long it, it not only retains its funding, but increases its funding year after year. Outrageous amounts of money are thrown at it. So that kind of makes Star Citizen an outlier. Because like, you know, Phantoms Inn, like some little Stardew Valley knockoff I have, that's in early access and that's not going to get $200 million a year for 11 years. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I don't. I, I, don't I don't want to. Before we move on, like I don't want to defend Star Citizen because um, I don't think I need to defend it. Either you're going to buy into what Chris Roberts is trying to sell you, which since his outset has drastically changed from his original yes. vision of it, um, and it's just a, a wholly different project now. And I think that it has come. A, a, a very very long way and is like the 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 spiel now from rsi is the road to 4.0 so that somehow version 4.0 is going to be like the finished game or whatever it's supposed to be or or the near finished state and we're at 3.18 and nobody knows what's in between 318 and 4.0 right because yeah they don't know rsi doesn't even know yeah that that's a very good point yeah they don't know what they don't know what's going on <laughs> Or CIG, whatever. And that's actually not me slamming them because, look, last time I played Star Citizen was five years ago. It was enjoyable five years ago. It's probably even better now. And you and I have talked about playing it together. And 
you know, once I get my gaming PC, you know, we have to make that a priority. But yeah, I I still have great memories of like the four hours I put into it five years ago. I can't say that about many games that I have great memories, whether it was like the guy trying to lead me into a back alley. So I think he could mug me. You know, he kept just saying, hey, <laughs> hey, over here, I got something special to show you. I got something special. And then there's like nothing around. And I started to get really creeped out. And like that would have not happened in a non-Star Citizen game. Or the guy in his belly who just laid in like the access lift to my like constellation ship. And he's just crawling around on his belly. I'm like, sir, sir, excuse me, sir. Can you move? I'm like, what does he want? <laughs> or or like evacking in the middle of space with my suit, which was nice. I saw the sun. It was like the movie Sunshine 2007 by Danny Boyle. Great movie. And like I tried to EVA back into my ship, but I just missed and knocked it. So it started spinning. And then I tried to get in and spin, spun more. And then I didn't know what to do. And it was spinning away from me towards the sun. So I just quit the game. Like... <laughs> I'm telling you these memories from five years ago because they're awesome. They were fun. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I, you know what? That's, that's probably the key of star citizen though. They are actively adding new content, which unfortunately is a lot different than a lot of early access. Yeah. And, and it's going to be, it's going to be person to person on whether or not they think that that added new content is coming fast enough or, or if it's be, if it, seems like it's the main focus of cig i i was saying rsi before but rsi is like the launcher for the for the game but cig yeah. is the company yeah i mean but the, the problem with it like it just all feels like a ponzi scheme because they have to so the problem with cig is that they have a laundry list of concept spaceships that they sell that that they say will be in the game in like six to ten years or whatever the time frame is there's no guarantee on that but they're selling these these they're selling JPEGs of ships for like hundreds of dollars, if not thousands. That's how they exactly. It's how they continue to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars to continue to fund what by a lot of roadmaps and older roadmaps they promised us before. Um, and I'm a I'm an early adopter of Star Citizen. I've only been playing it for a couple of years. So there are, I've missed a lot of the old days where just shit, just there was nothing there just didn't work. Uh, I think if you, if you play it now, you would, you're going to really love it. 318 introduces a lot of, uh, a lot of, well, the persistent entity streaming, which means if you drop something in a server, it's going to stay there forever. Uh, so, so it's a lot. So they've opened it up to um, allowing pirate pirate being piracy uh, is a lot easier because your cargo actually fills a shit and you can blow up a ship that uh, may or may not actually fully blow up. So you can take all the shit out of it. They're finally the uh, hull scraping ships, uh, the, like the reclaimer and they've, uh, and the vulture that they've recently come out. Like you can find wrecks of ship ships and scrape off the metal coating and sell the metal. Like, yeah, it, there's yeah, lots they've of done awesome a lot. features in it. Yes, they've done a lot. The mining is fine. Is gr- I mean, the mining's been good really since implementation. The the missions are finally getting fleshed out. Like the FBS bunker missions, the 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 delivery mission. Like it's all starting to finally come together, and it's really fun. And there's and it's it's great being a criminal too. Uh, they're adding a bunch of stuff to the prison system that's supposed to flesh it out as well. So like it's happening. Uh, and a lot of these early access games, like things are are happening, and they do continue to happen. It's just like. 
I mean, we're so off the topic of the AI. We AI are, we are, and, right? Yeah, but we are. But is is early access going to become a normal thing? Is it going? Is it is it slowly becoming normalized for these less than AAA studios? I hope it's revealed to be a fad. That's what I would say. I hope it's revealed to be a fad. I hope there's enough people like me that are like, you know, the development time post-successful early access is ridiculous. I'm a consumer. I demand more. I demand better. I do think, again, Star Citizen is a special case. But in general, yeah, I I hope it goes away. Well, okay, but how about uh, Baldur's Gate 3? Finally, actually got an actual full release date. Uh, I know Ghost Marty bought and paid full price for a third of the game like two years ago or whatever it was. And finally, it's going to be coming out soon, like in 2023. But at the time, you get a portion of the game that they clearly have finished and put out to early access. You pay full price for early access, not knowing when you're going to see the rest of it. So it has, it's still happening on major titles. Like this, Baldur's Gate is a major franchise. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I would say to that as a rebuttal of sorts is Baldur's Gate is a major franchise. Um, I think that was going to end up being finished probably no matter what. I think more about the person who has a great indie idea, maybe like a similar to Barone who programmed Stardew Valley. Barone, by the way, chose purposefully not to do early access. He said, no, I'm going to have people pay for a full complete game that's his decision but i think of indie developers like him i mean if you're busting your butt 16 hours a day six days a week suddenly you're flooded with like 15 million dollars and you're rich for the first time in your life you can stretch it out for decades if not for the rest of your life like how motivated are you to continue to crunch i i would say it's human nature not to be so i think it's more of an issue for indie developers than major developers well i mean even the even the term indie developer like is that just a single person in whatever spare time they can muster programming and developing a title that they only want to release once it's complete or is it a collection of a dozen people like employees that need income coming in to be able to operate as a studio as even an indie studio, right? Like, I just think there's so much. It's 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 a, such a spectrum uh, that you can get with developers in this industry that it's it's never going to be one size fits all. Although that seems like early an early access product is as close to one size fits all as you as you can get, I think, because. It offers a lot of benefits, but there are also a lot of downsides, potentially. Yeah. And I think, you, like you say, with Baldur's Gate 3, if there's less of the downside or less of a risk uh, based on you know how popular the project and the studio is, to buy into that early access, knowing that even if it takes a year, two years, three years, you'll get your finished product. I don't know if that's enough to justify the increased number of early access projects that you now have a, say a steam library filled with half or third finished games that you're waiting 
for the final end game stuff of it to come around that are you going to revisit it once it is? That's a very good point too. And as easy as it is to gain a library of unplayed games, especially with digital downloads and a service and client like steam, everybody's got a library, a steam library with games that they have never touched and have probably owned for more than a year in the right. Like that's just, it's yep. so easy to do with, with spring and winter sales and, Yada, yada, yada. And that's part of the conversation, but only a little part of it, I think. Yeah, actually, I think the best thing that you brought up right then and there is like, if you blow through the early access content with the amount of entertainment options and gaming options we have available, will you go back? And my correct answer is probably not, unless it was a fantastic game or probably not for a long time. There are certain games in early access which I own, but am refusing to play the early access version, waiting for the full version. Hmm. And where that was inspired actually was, it was recent. I mean, I kind of just let sleeping dogs lie, but uh, there was a game I brought it up called like 911 operator, uh, where it was kind of cool. You played like a 911 operator in your own town. And even our tiny little town outside of Vancouver as like the hospital and police station, fire station, all in the right spots on the road. But that game, the DLC, which I got, was what was completed after early access. And I did play that one with and without the DLC. It was just a mistake. At first, I didn't know this DLC was available for some reason. So I put in like 10 hours of the original game. It was a lot of fun. It's what made me want to get the DLC. But the DLC blew my mind with how much cool creative stuff it added. But I didn't play it long after I got the DLC in. I I got a few little things of novelty, but then I'm like, well, I played this basic game to death already through early access. Like, yeah, this is kind of fun, but now I'll move on to other stuff. And that's exactly what I did. Hmm. So yeah, that's an example of early access where I didn't really want to come back after or just didn't didn't stick it out because I played too much of the basic thing. But anyways, we've spent a long time on this segment. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we move on? I, I just, I think that some trends just never die. And I think they're, they, they'll just continue to persist. And if the culture as a whole is shifting to some of these practices, I, I don't really know how I feel about it. I don't know if it, if ultimately we're you're going to need some type of guarantee, uh, some type of legalese document that guarantees you something by a certain day. Like, like at, at, at a certain point, something has to become common practice. Like there needs to be something that the consumer can fall back on. Otherwise, it's, it's going to feel like you're just getting scammed. Yeah, I actually really like your idea you just brought up of like a time limit to get this done. I would love if it was if it was an industry standard for like to get uh, like one or two years to finish the game after early access in that if you didn't, everybody got like, let's put it this way. Instead of a refund, 50% of your early access fee is put into like escrow. It's like held by Steam or epic or whatever 
a client. And then once the game finally achieves full release, that developer gets what is in escrow. So they don't have to pay any money back, but if they don't complete the early access, they're out a lot of money. I think you do need to dangle that carrot. I just hate to say it's human nature, but I really get the sense that in a number of the early access games I paid for that are successful, the dev, I don't think purposefully like as a scam, but just got complacent with their money. It's like, I can move on to another project or another game. I don't need to finish this. Because what more, if you're very successful from early access, can you really expect to like triple the amount of purchases as soon as you get to full access? No, you'll get some, but it's hard to quantify. You've already made the vast majority, like the largest percentage of what you'll probably make on your project. Yeah. Uh, from the early access. Yeah. So you're right. Like how much more can you actually be expected to generate once the full release is out? Where Where is the incentive? You're right. I mean, the problem with that is like, you need a regulating body to do it and there. Yep. It's like impossible to implement. There's nothing like, honestly, you would need to put some of those funds in escrow, funds in escrow like immediately because yep. by the time your time limit comes up, they're going to be out of money and there's going to be nothing to put into an account, right? Like, yeah, I don't know what the solution is. It's like messy. And like, if the solution is just, I mean, honestly, it's like almost like anything is the solution is more often than not consumer awareness is the solution. And speaking with your wallet is always the solution you know, regardless of how effective it actually is, it's going to be the most effective thing that a consumer can actually do, but it, it takes a collective and that rarely ever happens. So. Fair enough. All right. We got board games, baby. Crazy about cardboard. It's been a while <laughs> since yes, we got to say that, but we're going to, we're going to hit you with the double feature, a little bit of an oldie and then a little bit of something a little more new. We're going to be, Reviewing, I know review is the right word, but talking about the classic, the Alan designed by Alan R. Moon, put up by Days of Wonder, Ticket to Ride, and all of the different variations that we may or may not have played, in addition to Planet, designed by Ertis Slinskis, put up by Blue Orange. What do you want to start with? You want to start with Planet? Let's start with Planet. Yeah, let's start with Planet. That's That's what I was feeling. So I'll give you a little overview, listener, if you're not familiar. Planet is a very unique board game or game. It's like, because there's not really, your board is a three-dimensional, I'm not sure how many sides it is. Probably a dodecahedron. There must be at least 12. I think there's 12 sides on it. It's fairly, it's about the size of a softball. And the tiles in the game are magnetic and they are like terrain tiles. And they're made up of one, I think there's one to four different types of terrain and varying orientations and almost like think of like a like they're hexagons but think of it like a, a piece of pie kind of thing like you have on one side maybe sand there'll be water on the opposing side maybe some grassland in between so you have like four of six sides like with touching grassland and you magnetically attach it to your globe and the point is to construct a world uh with all the the terrain types to meet as you progress through the rounds of the game to draw animal cards, which give you points. And the animals will have prerequisites. They're either going to be 
they're going to want like the largest contiguous type of terrain, or they're going to want a type of terrain that does not touch another type of terrain. So what you're going to do is you're going to, when you're comparing with the players, you look at your, your world and you literally just count and you say, Oh, okay. I have four spaces of sections of desert that don't touch water for this particular animal. Oh, Moby says, well, I have five. He then wins. He takes that animal and you progress until you've, you've completely filled in your little world. Um, and whoever has the most points at the end games wins. There's also hidden objectives too, um, where you're going to want to have the most, uh, or as many as you can of a given terrain. Like say, if it's water, it gives you point ranges. So you have say, again, these numbers are arbitrary, but if you have 15 sections of water, you get, or 15 to 17 sections of water, you get two points. If you have 18 to 20, you get three, et cetera. Uh, which also varies depending on the terrain that you are secretly given at the beginning of the game. I think that is it in a nutshell. That's, I mean, very simple, simple game, um, but has, I think there's some, some layers to it. What do you think, Moby? Yeah. I mean, for me, to be honest, like I don't have really a, a math based mind. And so anything kind of math related, I shouldn't say anything because probability and measurement actually are pretty easy for me, but the, just the fact that you're dealing with a three-dimensional shape and you constantly have to be aware of where all your little land tiles are on that globe. And I find it, I found it literally mind-inspiring for the lack of a better term. Like I felt my brain buzzing staring that at points <laughs> because you know, you know what cards you're trying to win immediately. You also know what cards you're trying to win like next round. So you're trying to plan ahead at the same time. And I felt like it really mentally engaged me. I also found it really interesting, the kind of worlds that I built in our couple games we played. Forget if we played two or three, it was at least two. But I remember one of them, I had this like gigantic ocean that just went across the ent entire equator. Right. And there was like no land around the center. And I was like, it's amazing how that formed. Like I didn't do that purposefully, but it was just amazing how it formed by me pursuing the animals and pursuing the cards. And I thought it was really cool. And it was really cool to kind of look at your, your globe when the game was done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, that part where I stuck like four mountains together to try to get the narwhal or something like that. It's <laughs> right. like, yeah, yeah. It was like, you, you can just tell when you're putting in maximum effort to win a card. Yeah. I really enjoy games that are, I hate the cliche, but easy to play, hard to master. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's one of them. I feel like that's one that we could play with Ghost Marty or his wife or my brother. And they would get it within just a couple minutes. But you could play five games in a row and none of us would feel like masters. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, obviously, there's a certain novelty that comes with it. Right. Cause you, like you say, the, it is like Uber tactile experience with this thing. Mm -hmm. You are mm -hmm. like, you're constantly rotating. Cause you're counting. I mean, you're counting it every single round. You're looking at it and observing it. Absolutely. I think that helps a lot. Uh, just the way the rules play that helps keep you connected to what you're building as well, because you are constantly assessing it numerically. You're assessing it. Now you're, numerically assessing a section of it, but it, it almost like it helps you 
separate what you have. And if you can keep track of that, you can also do pretty well in it, right? But I also like that as you are, depending on the random layout of how the animals play out, and you you get to decide whether or not you are going to attempt to compete, because you can kind of look at, you know, I look at your world and like, well, what what does he have? And of course, when you're choosing your tiles, it's like a draft too, right? So like, say, I think with two players, like four tiles come face up, and then whoever is first, choose and then choose, choose and choose. I, I think it's a snake. I had to refresh my mind on that. So like you see what is available in the pool of potential tiles and you can see what your opponents will grab. And obviously when you're looking and say, okay, the whale wants the most water, contiguous water. Well, you can see that there's two, two tiles with like half of water. Those are good tiles to grab to get the, the whale, obviously. Right. Yeah. But I also like that because of the way some of the uh, restrictions work for the animals, there's no real, there's no set strategy that says, okay, whoever has the largest contiguous desert is always going to get the desert animals. Because inevitably, if you do, if you make one consolidated desert across your whole globe, it's going to be touching every terrain type inevitably. And some of the one or more of those animals is going to be like it wants desert, but it doesn't want it touching woods. It yeah. doesn't want to touch it for us, right? So you, you you want smaller patches. You want small but large patches, not touching every terrain. You want large things that may not matter that it touches every terrain. Like it just it it's baked in the variability of it, game to game, and it never it never like it never feels like you're you're building the same world, right? Like. How many no. games would you have to play where it starts to become, oh, I've seen a world like I've like this before. Like, it, no, y- no, <laughs> like that just doesn't happen. You can play this a hundred times and be like, every world I think is going to feel unique. Yeah, I, the game constantly makes me feel unbalanced. And I mean that in a good way. Like it, it's not in certain games. And I wouldn't call that an engine building game. You you wouldn't either, right? No, it's not like no. you're building an engine. But no. in certain engine building games, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I've arrived. Like, I'm rocking it. Like, this is a powerhouse that I have, my board, whatever it is. And I never felt close to that in Planet. I always felt like I was constantly looking. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I got like my Mount Everest of like four ice spaces touching. And then Leland is like, well, take a look at Wilson, the white volleyball. It's like, all white. I'm like, how, how did you manage to do this? And you take the card, but it's that constantly like scanning the cards. What's coming up? What tiles are left? What is Leland building? It's, it's a very engaging game. Like it's not a game to play. I would say if you're just looking for like a relaxing game mentally, for me, it was taxing. Maybe you're a lot smarter than I am. I wouldn't doubt that. But for me, it was very mentally taxing, but in a good way. It was like a, a brain teaser. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And so it's touching on the components themselves, um, the world is is like it's like a, a plastic D12, essentially, the, the decahedron. The tiles themselves are very well crafted. I think the magnets um, and again, we, you know, this copy doesn't have a, a, an immense amount of use. I don't know how long the magnetic tiles would hold up like sitting on the shelf in a box for like the next five years. I'm not sure, but right out of the box, they, they 
attach very well. They can kind of slide a little bit when you're depending on how roughly you're manipulating your world throughout the gameplay, but very easy to slide back into place. Um, didn't have too much troubles with it. I think there's you develop. It's like you develop a technique of holding it and rotating, counting it. Because um, at the very end of the game, when you're counting up for your hidden goal, you have all twelve, so all sides of it that can kind of get a little. You can get a little lost counting up your terrain. Yeah. Right? If you're trying to count up your water, you're like, okay, I'm gonna start on the bottom and I'm gonna work in. Like my technique was bottom tile, work in the rows. One row, two row, top. And that's kind of how I kept myself oriented a little bit. So that can be a little tricky at the end, uh, but nothing that you can't overcome. Yeah, I agree with you having to find your own style. I would have to play it again to rediscover my style. But I remember I was using my fingers to like prick certain points. I'm like, okay, I've counted outside of my fingers. Oh. I'll count inside. <laughs> right. Because like, I mean, the game doesn't really tell you how to do that. No. It just tells you you have to count that stuff up. You know what? You know what would probably be smart is just as you've counted the tile, just pull the tile off of your world. I didn't even think of that until now. <laughs> well, there you you, go. Like you want to keep it intact as long as you can, right? You want to like admire it almost because it's, I, it's I agree. It's cool. It's cool. It It is cool at the end of the game to see what planet you've created. Yeah. And I agree with you. You brought up the magnets. And like you said, you don't know how last they're, how long they're going to last. But I like the simple pleasure of a strong magnet where you like hold it up. <laughs> and it's like yeah. It is a simple yep. pleasure. And I am a simple Moby. It's good. It hits on it hits on more than just the few senses that are generally you get, I think. And I think it 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 also is part of that brain tingly that it gives you like it's all part of it's all part of the package i think it's really well put together i really enjoyed this yeah i i really enjoyed it too i would absolutely be up for playing it again i would like to play with some new people you and me probably have the same people in mind t hud fam jam and uh see see how they like it and how a three or four player game would go but yeah i i absolutely like it I agree with you because we did. We have only ever played a two. It does play two to four. I think introducing a third and fourth player in the way you choose the tiles and uh, competing to attract the animals, I think would add quite a bit to it. Yeah. Now, and and we may not be at the spot in the podcast just yet, or we might be there. Do we want to rate this? Do we want to rate Planet in our board game reviews or? Uh, sure. Uh, for refresh listener, we, uh, we rank what we are board games that we talk about. We don't usually assign a number. Of course, you are free to do so if you like Moby. So on the website, tgpopcast.com, you can see our, uh, BG review rankings if you like. Yeah, let's do it one at a time. Sure. We can go, uh, let's refresh our list. So my, my list starting one, one to the bottom, Transatlantic, Downforce, Twilight Imperium, fourth edition, Splendor, Wingsman, Kemet, This War of Mine. I'm going to slide in Planet, I think, below Wingsman. So third from the bottom. And again, that is less less a comment on Planet, but more on what's in the list itself. Moby, your list. My list is Twilight Imperium at the top, followed by Splendor, followed by Transatlantic, followed by Wingspan, followed by Kemet, followed by Downforce, and This War of Mine. And 
I would put Planet second from the bottom. And this is to say I like all of these board games, but I would put it just a nose below Downforce just because <laughs> Downforce I don't need to think as much in, even though Planet's <laughs> much prettier. But uh, it's just a smidge under Downforce, but I need to say that I really do like it. Well, let's move on to Ticket to Ride. Probably a game that if you're an avid tabletop board game player you're you're well acquainted with i mean this is like when i think of ticket to ride i mean it it came out in 2004 so this thing's like almost going on 20 years old now it's it's like when i think of gateway games obviously this is a very good one and it's in the it's in like the next generation after settlers of Catan, right like it's in because Catan was in like mid 90s when it came out right this is this is the ne- this is like the the generation the millennial of <laughs> of the gateway uh, board games for me and obviously Ticket to Ride you have a map of whatever region depending on the version of the game you have there's plenty of uh, different maps I played uh, Emma and I actually played uh, Amsterdam Ticket to Ride Amsterdam uh, when oh, I was cool. visiting her but in the original it's of um, the USA with a few Southern Canadian. Uh, west coast cities um actually i think just vancouver (laughs) interesting but you have a hand of uh train cards of varying colors i think there's six different colors plus a wild and on the board the roots correspond to the colors of the cards you are drawing from a face-up pile of five train cards every turn you can either take two cards or lay a root or grab more root cards um, and the root cards are just objectives of roots you were trying to build from point A to point B. It's going to be worth a number of points. If you don't fulfill a route at the end of the game, it's minus points for you. As you lay your trains there, they vary from one length to five length, I think. And they have a corresponding range of point value for laying those tracks. So you're accumulating points for just building trains on the board. So if you have a track length that is three black if you have three black train cards you can play them put them in the discard pile pile and put your colored trains on that route you've now obviously claimed it no one else can build on that because your trains are there um there's a train limit so once you're down to i think it's zero one or two trains there's one last round and that triggers the end game and then you tally up your completed routes subtract any ones you don't and whoever has the most points wins incredibly simple like very simple. I mean, this this is one of the very few games that when my dad was still alive, he would tolerate to play. And when my stepmom was tolerate. alive, she like, yeah, tolerate to play. When my stepmom was alive, <laughs> she loved Ticket to Ride. Like one of the first games she ever got me was the 10th anniversary of Ticket to Ride. It's a beautiful version of it. The box is huge. The map is huge. The, the, the train pieces themselves are all unique uh, to the colors. They're in like a, a nice metal tin. Uh, it's a, it's a really great version. She liked it so much that she bought one for herself. So like this has a, this is a very nostalgic game for me when my dad would play, he would only ever go for the wild cards. He just would grab the wild cards and that was it. And you can only rather normally you can pick two cards. If you, if you can only grab one wild, if you grab it face up, right. He, that, but he didn't care. He just went wild. Wow. And obviously he never won. Cause that's a terrible strategy, <laughs> terrible strategy, but I don't know. This game, lots of memories, like much like uh, like Downforce, which is in, in, in my top three. Another one that I played a lot with my dad because he, again, one of the only few games that he actually enjoyed. 
so this one's probably going to be pretty high up on my list. Um, but I know Moby, you recently learned and played Ticket to Ride, right? Yeah. So, listener, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, but um, at my workplace now, um, our marketing manager uh, set up a board games night. So once a month, it's always the same group of four. It's uh, himself, our marketing manager, our engineer. We have one chemical engineer and our lead designer, graphic designer. He's the guy that, you know, a part is put on his desk and he turns it into a 3D model on his computer. And then there's myself who <laughs> manages like 40% of Canada as a sales account manager. So we've got sales, marketing, engineering, design. And it, it's just really fun because there's a lot of trash talking between the different people. It's like, oh, that's the kind of move that marketing would think of or really lame. Like <laughs> our engineer, Daisy, is actually the most ruthless. Like she will trash talk like nobody else, but she backs it up like that girl will put a poison dart frog tipped knife in your back just to take like a two train route from you. And then, of course, everybody jokes like the very religious, quiet, wouldn't hurt a fly designer is like secretly Darth Vader. So we always joke like, oh, Michael is dominating again. He's going to screw us over. He's like, uh, no, 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 I won't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's a great environment to learn. So we did we did ticket to ride and I really enjoyed it right away overall. Um, it was very easy to play. Uh, I liked I, I just found it very intuitive, very easy to learn. I really like, for some reason, the mechanic that you start with your beginning cards, your, your mission cards, essentially, the, the routes you want to take. And if you get out to a pretty darn good start, you can choose to draw more cards. Now, the thing is, you draw three, but you have to pick at least one. And you're typically drawing at the mid or later game, at least in the games I've played. So you kind of have to be pretty confident that you're going to nail that card because if you don't nail that ticket, I should be using the word ticket, as Leland mentioned, it, subst it subtracts from your total. So it's not like you could win 12 points. Oh, you didn't do it. Okay, you don't get those 12 points. No, you're minus 12 points now. So, but the, the, the tickets, to be fair, are worth a lot. Many of them are. They can really push you ahead. So you want more tickets, but it's balancing that risk. But also, I do like how you don't need to take the, I forget if it's three or four tickets you're issued at the beginning of the game. You have to select, I forget if it's like one or two of them or whatever, but you don't have to take them all. And so you can kind of see like, okay, these three tickets fit this side of the map, but this one doesn't. So I'll take these three. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I really enjoy. Yeah, I enjoy trying to not be blocked to get the longest train and constantly be ahead of someone trying to block me. So that's a lot of fun. I think the design of the game is great. It's got this like colorful 19th century retro look to it. The amount of maps are amazing. I play a lot of it on Steam now. I bought it the night after I first played it on Steam. And the amount of available maps, like there's so much replayability for a board game which is which is fantastic. I really don't have much to complain about it except I do think it gets tedious at times. And what I've noticed both playing online and in person, 
was there were a lot of rounds where people would just draw and like consecutive rounds of like draw, draw, draw. And I'm talking resource cards, your colored train cards, because you want to go somewhere, you want to build certain tracks, but you don't have the right colors. And it's only monotonous for maybe a minute or two here or there, but it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, I'll draw. Okay, I'll draw. Yep, no, I'm going to draw two. And I do think it affects the pacing of the game. We also played with the wrong rule, and I wonder how that affected my my first play. So, you know, on certain maps, you need like a locomotive, a wild card. Well, actually, I shouldn't go just specifically locomotive, but like tunnels. And say you have a tunnel and you play, say the tunnel's too long and you place two, uh, you pay two red to try to take that tunnel, build on that tunnel. And then you have to draw the top three cards from the deck. And if it's either a locomotive, so a wild card or a red, then you need to pay an extra red or locomotive to complete the tunnel. At least on the European map I was playing, that was the rule. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be that map specific. Yeah, yeah. But what I didn't like about that on that map specifically was we were basically taught by the guy who taught us the game that if either a wild card locomotive or a card of the same color popped up out of those three, you were just screwed. You're just done. Next person's turn. But what I found out from the Steam version of the game is you can actually pay the extra cards to overcome that. So that we were doing that wrong meant additional tediousness and that people just kept trying to build tunnels and it was like, fail, fail, fail. So that wasn't good. Yeah, that's that's that can be rough for sure. It opens up another element of randomness to it, which in the again, the base version of it, there's not there's not really there's no tunnels or anything like that. But you are subject to the randomness of the five face up train cards that yes. you can draw from. If you just if you're not getting the color that you need to finish your route, then you, you got to dig from. I mean, you can pull blindly from the top and hopefully maybe you like you can potentially pull two wilds face down from the top of the deck. Right. Nobody sure. else knows what you're grabbing. But again, that's very luck dependent. Uh, so that that can certainly like put a wrench in it too. Like you can either get lucky or you can get really, really unlucky. And depending on what you've been collecting in lieu of the color you needed, maybe you can pivot to another route and get around what you needed. Another thing about the base game is veterans of it learn all of the root cards and essentially work out a probability of whether or not it's worth them going for more because they can get overlap of what they've already built, which I I mean, if your group, if you, if you have a group that plays a specific game until like everyone masters it or gets sick of it, I guess that is, that's something that could be a complaint, but that's not the way I consume board games. It's more of a, I have a more uh, broad palette (laughs) <laughs> if you were to say yes. rather than a refined taste uh the way the way that we play and how infrequently unfortunately that we really do get to play them is i like to sample <laughs> give me the the charcuterie plate of board games rather than <laughs> you know a, a single entree kind of thing yeah it's it whenever predictability like that is is put into a board game um i think it's difficult like luckily the people i was playing with didn't have that Though where predictability did come into play was playing so much online versus the computer. 
like I could tell when the computer was building towards certain routes. It's like, yeah, okay. Like I can wait to block you here. Cause I, I know it's going to be heading towards this one spot. And I think that even though I have limited experience playing it in person, I think with other newcomers, especially, I think the temptation with Ticket to Ride is to have very concrete thinking. Okay. So for example, one of your cards is like a huge 21 point card. Well, if you start, for example, in the European map, you start building from like Cadiz, which I think is in Spain, all in your clearly going diagonally up to Russia to like Moscow, which is like one of the most expensive cards in that version of the board or the game. Like it's pretty obvious to see someone trying to worm their way to the diagonal corner of the map. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then basically they're at your mercy. You're like, I can block them here, here, here. You can plan ahead. And I guess depending on how many players, because I'm not sure what the player count on that map is, because many of the maps are made for like lower player counts. Like I think Ticket to Ride Amsterdam is two to three. Interesting. And like playing it, playing it two players, like we ripped, like we played it in under 10 minutes and it was over. Wow. And I stomped Emma. <laughs> but like it's like this Good tiny little game. Oh, yeah. I got to take the wins when I can get them because she's a shark. But it's like <laughs> this little board and. It's actually like there's not even actually trains. It's what it's like 1800s or whatever. So you're actually laying wagon routes. So some of the tracks have little wagon symbols on them. And if you build a route with a wagon in it, you take a wagon card. And at the end of the game, whoever has the most wagon cards scores X amount of points. Second most, you know, half that last place, half of the half. Right. So that's the little extra rule for that version of the game. But. It was like, it felt like we ripped through it. It was, it was like, blew my mind. It was so quick. Uh, we could have played three games in like 30 minutes if we wanted to. Yeah. And I do think that that is a potential fault of the game amongst experienced players. That some of the fun, depending on what you enjoy about board games, kind of gets eliminated if you all know exactly what you want to do. It's just like place, 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 go, 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 draw. And at that point, you're almost playing solitaire like Wingspan um, can feel like at times. Because it, it then comes the point where not only do you know where you would block your opponent, but you know where they would want to block you. And sure, you can try to you can try to mask it and build from different corners or whatever. But like, look, an experienced player on a certain map is going to know where you're trying to go. Yeah, exactly, because all the maps are going to have their own hotspots. Like on the base game, the hotspot is really in the middle of the board. There's a bunch of like two train length interconnected routes, and you can zigzag your way through it, but you can really block off some sections of it. Particularly, um, there's a southern section in there that you can just completely cut off the bottom half of the board. And like, and that's a good point, though, because you don't have to build your train route contiguously. You can build in any section of the map that you want and hopefully maybe like if you can if you build in the western half and then plop, plop down on the east and you need to connect them then hopefully you'll be able to connect them but maybe you don't need and you're actually on two different routes so with yeah you could maybe feign that with some knowledge but you're right like it's just going to be like it's meant to be a simple game it's not meant to be incredibly complex hence the very limited rule set also why like the different versions in really introduce only like one other variant rule into the type of map. Right. 
and they don't compound as you go from version to version. It's just like the rule that you played on Amsterdam is now missing in European, right? Or in the Germany map uh, or the Nordic, uh, Nordic countries map or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. It varies things enough because you have a varied rule and a varied map to make the game feel fresh enough, but not enough to become overwhelming where you're like constantly second guessing what's going on. If you only need to, you know, one map, you've got tunnels, one map you don't, but you know, you, you've got this additional thing instead. That's just a lot easier to keep track of. So, you know, it, it's a fantastic gateway game. I think, um, I think it's a great alternative to say settlers of Catan, which is just, beyond overexposed at this point. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, w- what do people like new players to Settlers of Catan? You know, they like to to try to go for longest road and something dramatic like that. Well, you can essentially do that in Ticket to Ride. Yeah, you're right. Right? Like if you put yeah. four trains on the board in a turn versus two trains, you're going to get more points from four trains. Exactly, exactly. But that also means you're spending more time collecting train cards because you need four of a con- four of a color, right? So again, based on the RNG, and, and I mean, it's really something easily noticeable in some of these uh, more like entry point games, the randomness plays more of a factor and it's more of yes. a percentage of the game. When you think of like a game like Transatlantic, there's, the, there's no randomness in it because you always have access to your hand of cards you're choosing, well, I guess the randomness, no, that's, I misspoke, but the randomness is the ship track. That's it. The way they come out and the order in which the ships come out, which even that randomness is limited because they're broken up into eras. You know, uh, they're on the back, they're from zero to 10. They're, they're the eras of, of ships, which is a progression of technology as you're playing through those boats. So in a game like that, there's that's it's much more complex the interactions that you have with the card play based on the the card driven mechanic of it, right? So that's limiting the variables and putting more or more skill base. Where obviously entry point games kind of do the opposite, where it allows it to be more accessible to uh, more players because there's this element of chance and chaos to it that is kind of like a a a middling of like a middle ground kind of thing that even evens the playing field yeah yeah that's actually a great point i never considered that for entry-level games but that totally makes logical sense and and obviously i agree with it and and you know some people hate that randomness and there's certain people like (laughs) you and i we just love playing we love playing with our friends and like I think you secretly really enjoy teaching people to play. You seem to revel in that. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, people like my brother, they, he'd be like, well, F this. I mean, like all this randomness. Like if I know that if I master the game, I want to squash you like a bug on turn two. And so someone like that, a very competitive person, obviously would have issues with these uh, gateway games. But, I mean, it, it's important to have because... You know, the board gaming world has just become so big in the past decade or so. And when people express interest in it and are like, you know, I want to try one of your really cool games. You know, you need something to throw out there that isn't Twilight Imperium for. 
or or was it was, was that Cold War game that we still don't know that oh, Twilight, Twilight Struggle Twi- yeah. Twilight Struggle like, just stay away from we, Twilight listener yes don't play anything with the name Twilight in it. if we yeah. were to play Twilight Struggle like we would have to completely relearn it and like yes that's a great game and I really like playing that game with you we had that bout where we played it like three or four times like oh my goodness the span yes. of like three days right um it's a great game and honestly we should revisit it but like we, we would have to relearn the whole fucking thing it's a problem yeah yeah it 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 is and it, i mean it's super difficult we'd probably best be served trying that over steam so we can't fuck up with the rules yeah that's true actually but i mean you're right again that's one of the problems with the complicated games you know lowest on my list of board games listener you will see is um why am i forgetting the name it's because we've been doing this so long this war of mine and it's more like i just didn't have enough of an experience and learn what to do with this war of mine enough it was just a complex very difficult game and you know i think sometimes maybe that's the reason why i vote a game a little lower is is just due to that complexity and the fact that you need to come back learn it again get a refresher where it's nice like ticket to ride i mean i i could throw that game in the proverbial shelf for five years and come back and i'd be able to play it just like that yeah i think that's a definitely a, a positive for these types of lower low barrier to entry games right like you said like I mean, they're they're the reason that I have a number of them that stick and persist in my collection because I've said multiple times on the show, I I pride myself on the curation of my collection to be applicable to any type of group and or number of players, right? I, like I want to be able to pull something off. Oh, I have the perfect game for this situation. Pull something off. And more often than not, it's one of the a game like this that's very easy to teach, uh, very low. Like like you can you can play it and you can chat, right? And you can enjoy each other's yes. company as well. Like sometimes you want a game that you can do that with. This is certainly one of those games. I mean, the original uh, Ticket to Ride plays two to five players. That's a that's a good that's a good player range. I wouldn't suggest playing with two, uh, but three to five would probably be a good, a good sweet spot. So where do you put this one on your list then? Well, I mentioned off air that I would actually like to move Wingspan. And I would actually like to move Wingspan quite high. So I actually want to move Wingspan all the way up to uh, my number two. So great above Splendor. All right. And then where this, where Ticket to Ride would go is actually right under Transatlantic. It would essentially replace Wingspan on my list. So Ticket to Ride would be ahead of Kemet downforce planet and this war of mine okay i i'm gonna slide my uh ticket to ride in fourth place under twilight imperium 4 and above splendor wingspan planet and kemet and this war of mine yeah okay cool. force that's fine like i said i have a lot of good memories good family memories playing this game uh so i hold it in pretty high regard yeah i think uh I think that's fair, Leland. I think that, you know, nostalgia plays a big role, but I think you and I appreciate this game for what it is. It doesn't have to be Twilight Imperium or Twilight Struggle. It doesn't have (laughs) to have that complex rule set. It doesn't have it doesn't have to be planet where you're constantly straining to look over your your globe. 
And like you said, I think that was great. It's a game you can still talk through because when you come to our rare now hangout nights, you're expected to bring some board games always. And you have to curate for the audience that's there because people will want to talk. And there's usually, you know, one of the wives there, girlfriends or some people that just need a casual game they can talk through. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all I got for, for Ticket to Ride, end of show stuff. End of show stuff. This is a long episode. I was not expecting this to go as long as it did, but that was great. Uh, It's good to be back and back behind the microphone. Our website, ttpopcast.com, the TED Podcast on Facebook, TT Podcast on Instagram. I am Leland underscore Steele on Twitter, and that is who I've been. And I've been Moby. I would like to say that I pursue Leland Steele on Twitter to bug him, but I, alas, do not. However, I have committed and been successful with at least one article for the website, and I pledge more. I will have another one submitted in the next uh, week or so there. So I have been Moby, and uh, with that, no point in dragging this out. I will say take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye.